creative company is so delicious, and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. So many of us started writing songs and playing instruments at a very young age. But not everybody got to go work for the NBC Today Show, I will tell you that. Matt Ruffino is here today, and he has won five Emmys so far. He's worked with so many people you wouldn't even believe it. Dave Matthews Band, Bon Jovi, Robert Plant, Fleetwood Mac, Lady Gaga, Sting, Aretha Franklin, Taylor Swift, John Mellencamp. He mixes thousands and thousands of songs per year. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're here. How's it going? Mateo, oh my God, it is so cool to see you in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. My room looks awesome. Your room looks great. Well, thanks. Yeah, I've got yeah. a nice acoustic piano over there and a bunch of guitars and amps over there and some drums over there and more guitars over there. How's that little audience treating you? Good? This is actually quite quite sweet, actually. I, I just swapped out uh, the master bus board. Oh, you put I bought, that uh, HE in? I No, uh, just that it um, it was giving me unlevel, uneven uh, levels. Yeah. When I took a video and said, hey, audience, what's going on? They said, you need this part. So I had to swap that out. But uh, you know, I was it like the volume trim was off or something? Like on the, the speaker levels, outs? The master levels were off. And I felt like every time I made a mix, there was a definite point in time where all of a sudden it felt like the mix was um, askew. Like it really wasn't the stereo image that I thought I was creating. I'm like and, a stickler for that. I, I yes. I've sort of learned how to grab so much of my mix from just making sure the center is really center, especially yeah. using analog, you know, where you start to feel like the kick starts pulling this way and the snare starts pulling this way or the other way around. And I know that's what, yeah. Anytime you're running anything, you know, stereo compressors, parallel compressors, anything like that, it's going to shift the image a little bit. Um, so if you don't calibrate things down to, you know, as to a 10th of a DB, at least it's, everything starts to shift. That's actually sort of my biggest, um, when I go back and forth between hardware and plugins, a lot of times it's not the sound as much as the image. Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. You know, it could sound better, but if the image goes crazy, then it doesn't sound better. <laughs> No, and there are sometimes some fantastic mixes that I'm enjoying out in the world that don't really do much for me in the headphones, but they sound killer out in the speakers. <laughs> That's true. That's and they're true not my too. mixes. But when I'm doing mixes, I just like I want things to sound glorious in the headphones, and maybe they're not translating good to speakers. Who knows? <laughs> it's a struggle. It's a struggle we all have, and I think depending on the era of music too. I've to noticed that. You know, I was, I've been kind of on a 90s kind of kick lately. And, really? And, uh, yeah, i just been going back and listening to a lot of like the JJP catalog from the 90s. And, and um, you know, Love everything it. was a lot brighter almost then in a way. Um, oh, definitely. You know, it has a different, you know, the, I, I don't know if it's brighter or the low end is just not as much. So when you're listening to new stuff, Partially you know. That. Yeah, the comparison is. I think now too, it's bright. We're brighter in the super top. Yeah, super and top now. and super bottom. And sometimes I really enjoy just the center. 
<laughs> it's it's like everything else is too hyped and it's like well the song doesn't really live there so why don't i just focus on the center like jjp says you know yeah the mid-range is so important to to yeah. the whole mix you know he's right about that that's definitely one of his his takes on it and yeah um, but since you've done so much analog and now you're doing digital as well i was wondering how anybody who was working professionally analog wise actually managed overall levels everywhere because now that we can see an eq like on the master bus it's so easy to say you know your target really should be only minus 36 peak in the base and then maybe minus 48 peak minus i don't ever remember anyone even saying any of that stuff honestly it was like you looked at the the left right meter on the console you looked at your half inch machine when you were printing and it wasn't blowing up so you were okay yeah and if it was blowing up you trimmed it down i remember i remember i remember some guys who had like passive trim pots built as part of their rig and if the console was like totally exploding but sounded great they'd run it through these passive attenuators in between the studer half inch oh wow and and just kind of pat it down but still have the console meters like slammed I never had anybody mention that either until I started studying different people's way of working digitally. And I thought, I think that's what's missing from my digital mixes because I would take things out to the car and I could leave things at totally down the mid range, you know, like, I mean, in the middle, the bass, the mids and the yeah. highs for anything Dave O'Donnell did sure, <laughs> would sound beautiful in the car, but mine would be like, Whoa, I need to attenuate the bass or need to put up the mids. Cause I have like this allergy to mid range. Like I don't want things to be too, uh, mid range heavy, but then if you're lacking in that, it really lacks clarity. You got to be careful. So when they mentioned those levels, that really helped me. It helped me get into the ballpark. Huh. All you professional guys were saying, that's ridiculous. I never heard anybody say that. No, I know some people do like that meter thing where they set their levels that way. Yeah. I I mean, honestly, I don't even think like in the first 10 years that I was doing TV, I even looked at the meters. Like I, I just don't. If mean, it feel, it, yeah. Yeah. We're supposed to be within a certain range and Dolby, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know. I mix way louder than everyone. And. I just bring the master down in the end, but I still keep the energy of are you sort doing, of what I'm doing. I guess similar to the analog stuff. Are you doing guys. Atmos stuff now too? No, I'm sort of waiting on that. Um, I've been in five one in television for uh God, 19 years. Nice. And uh no one even ever asked me about it. So, you know, I'm not rushing out to go spend a ton of dough on a setup until <laughs> What are you capturing 5.1 on? Because I can mix in 5.1 here in Logic, but I can't capture it on anything. I was working that out with Dave Moulton a bunch of years ago, and there was nothing we could record to so that I could take it out to my Acura and listen to it. No, there isn't. I mean, the way that I, when I first started working in 5.1, um, and one of the reasons why I kind of don't like multi-channel anything, and I'm a fan of stereo, is <laughs> I, I went out and I bought, so I, I knew I was going to be mixing a 5.1. And other than hearing, like, I was lucky. I got to hear these great mixers mixing 5.1. Elliot Shiner and, and um, God, I can't remember. Uh, this great Telarc engineer. Um, oh, his name is, is slipping me now, but he's an excellent engineer. 
Um, so I heard this stuff, but I'd never done it on my own. And then all of a sudden I was having to mix in five one. Um, so I went out on Amazon at the, I don't even know if it was Amazon then, whatever it was, I bought uh, like $800 Samsung all in the box, Blu-ray 5.1 home player, right. uh, with the wireless rears. And I would just DVR what I did and check it there. But to be honest with you, the thing that scared me the most about it was I bought this system and it had some calibration features in it. Very basic, you know, not even like they probably do today in home systems. It took me six months to make the thing sound right in my living room. And I wow. do this for a living. I so know. <laughs> it really got me thinking about like, well, you know, what is the average person? How are they setting this up? You know, they probably get the rear speakers just next to the you know, front speakers, because, you know, <laughs> they're, you know, they don't want to put them in the back. They don't want to see any wires, whatever it is. Sure. Uh, so that kind of scares me. So I'm very conservative in my yeah. five one. You know, it's basically just ambience and reverbs and stuff in the rears. Yeah. I don't do a lot of heavy panning. A little bit of audience. <laughs> yeah, a lot of audience. Um, I just, you know, the way that Dolby works when it does the down mix it's taking what you put towards the rears and it's monoing them and putting them like 6db under but also flipping the phase Ooh. so the way i look at it is like say you want to get fancy and you're i'm going to make my guitars really wide and i'm going to start to push them out to the back well your tv box is going to take half that guitar signal now and mono it and flip it out of phase so then when you go listen back in the down mix the guitars are lower no oh. So that stuff sort of freaks me out a little bit. So yeah. I just stick to sort of stereo-ish kind of <laughs> mixing. And I'm not, you know, again, it's going to be at least twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 for me to really do Atmos correctly. And that's like not even going crazy with speakers. I know. And no one's asked me for it yet. So until they do, I'm not going to jump on that bandwagon. I'll let's see if Apple gets their way or not. Yeah. Uh, what did so I what, pull you away from this morning? Uh, well, I did a mix this morning in the city, um, Chance the Rapper. Um, so I did that. That was five songs we did. And then I had to drive down to uh, one of the mobile truck companies I work with, uh, this company, Music Mix Mobile. Um, they actually were nice enough to loan me some gear. Uh, that I had to drop back off to them, uh, some mic pre's and stuff I needed for a session. And now I'm here back in my room uh, at the barber shop, prepping uh, some stuff for overdub session next week. Uh, when we're done with this, uh, one of the guys is going to come up and give me a hand and we're going to set up my live room for guitars and bass and keys and vocals. So Sweet. do that. And then I'm going to take a nice little long weekend. And then Monday we... We uh, do four days on that, and then they come back the following week, I think, for another five. And I think I got to do a mix in between. Oh, sweet. So, yeah, it's been good. I've been lucky that I've been staying pretty busy. Yeah, super busy. Now, what is the uh, amount of setup that's involved when you're doing live? Like sometimes you guys are outside, sometimes you're inside on a stage. You must have help setting up all those mics. Oh, oh yeah. No, I've got uh, this guy, Mitch, has been with me for 20 years now. He's my stage one, A2. Um, he's great. One, he, one other person? 
<laughs> well, no, he just he does just just the stage, and then he has like uh, an assistant for the concerts outside. Inside, okay. he's on his own, and then uh, we have Pat, who's our monitor engineer, and he works with the band's monitor engineer and all that stuff. And then uh, Brian, right now, is our front of house engineer for the outside stuff. And then uh, the company we use uh, to rent our gear from uh, a company called PRG, who they're really well known in Manhattan. They do all the Broadway shows. They supply all the audio gear for that sort of stuff, all the theaters, a lot of corporate stuff. Um, wow. And so their guy, Kevin, he's like our RF tech. He comes in and he's like the systems tech as if you were on a tour and you rented a package. So he shows up with the gear every day, tunes the RF. You know, if we have to bring in a special wireless mic, that's one of not one of our normal pieces or, you know, we've got extra in-ears that day or they had to build a package for me because we've got a Broadway show with 30 singers and they're on different body pack mics versus... Cool. you know, handheld. So it's, it, it takes a whole team and then there's lighting and power and, you Absolutely. know, it's, it's a big crew. It's definitely a big crew. But what fascinates me is, you know, a lot of times different people I've known have given me a little bit of feedback, like don't try to do so much by yourself. You know, I mean, even when I was a little kid, it was like, decide, do you want to sing or do you want to play? And I was like, Oh no, I want to do both. And then because yeah. I'm nine, 10 years old and I'm writing songs. I want to record them. I'm not going to be paying for studio time at that age. So there was a lot of years of writing songs where I wanted to capture things and I needed a dream machine to capture all this stuff. And like you fell in love with recording, you know, but I didn't necessarily want to be a recording engineer. So now people say to me, well, why don't you just be the artist and don't engineer and don't mix and then don't master and then don't, you know, like all these things, but like live, you have to do all that stuff. It's, not when does this need to be delivered? It's instant. It's it's happening. Yeah, the way that I set it up, basically, it is like I'm recording, mixing, and mastering all at once. The way That's that my thinking. signal flow is, um, you know, I'm probably more heavy-handed on stuff in in the live situation because I look at it as if I was going to track a record or a performance of any kind and I was sitting at a console, I would probably EQ and compress a little go into tape or to Pro Tools, whatever you want to call it now. Right. And so that's going to happen. Then if I was mixing a record, I would be getting those tracks from someone who already EQ'd and compressed a little and did whatever it was they did to get the tone. So I sort of have a first layer of in my mixing where it's almost like, this is tracking, you know, I don't have a ton of time to move mics around, you know, my assistant, Mitch, he'll move some stuff for me, but sometimes it's so fast that you don't, it's not like I'm out there moving the snare drum mic over an inch. Like I'll listen to the overheads, make sure they're balanced. As long as they're balanced and the snares in the center, um, everything else, unless it's really bad, I'm just going with, but that means my first layer of work is like some corrective EQ, high pass filtering, uh, listening to what the bleed is. You know, a lot of what my work is, is EQing out the bad bleed and, and uh, pushing up the good bleed. You know, if that means the background vocalist, the snare drum sounds really good in their mics, I'll push the background vocal mics up and that's my drum room. Um, if it's really bad and trashy, I'll go in with the dynamic EQ or dynamic compressor and 
work those frequencies out. Uh, wow. Expanders, I use a lot of expanders, which is something I don't do as much in recording other than more for noise or if I'm looking for a certain feel. But I'll use what two. Doing, what are they two, doing for you here that you, uh, would, that you decide to use them? Uh, uh, you know, like today I had a, a trumpet um, and um, he was it was just a Sennheiser 421 on the stage and it was getting a lot of there was because it was a hip hop thing. The stage was loud. There's lots of side fills and wedges and subs. So it's just picking up everything. So I've kind of worked the EQ to get some of the subs out. And then I've used the dynamic compressor to like actually compress when the sub is going, when the kick is going, it's not reacting to the trumpet. It's reacting to, to mm. that. And maybe there's something in the mid range where the snares cracking in. So maybe I'm compressing a little bit of that. That's sort of now creating the horn. It's almost like uh, opening the window, you know, oh, wow. like you, someone's talking to you and you open the window and now it's gotten clear. So I'll do all that. And then wow. in between a lot of times, if I'm going to use a limiter, say it's um, a trumpet and I might pick a Fairchild or something before the Fairchild, I might put an expander in. So when they're not playing, the gain is getting reduced by maybe three or five dB in between the notes. So that bleed is going to go lower because the compressor is going to release higher. Wow. Right. So when this horn hits, the compressor, the limiter goes down a couple of dB if I'm trying to make it sit a certain way. But then okay. it's going to come back up. Well, when that's coming back up, my expander's pulling down so that noise isn't getting raised 6 dB. That's that great. Makes sense. So like a lot of little things like that that you wouldn't have to do on a record that, you know, you're thinking about. Same thing with vocal. I'm always listening to the vocal in every instrument. Hmm. So maybe the drummer has a wedge to his hi-hat side and there's a ton of vocal in there and that's bleeding through the hole between the hi-hat and the snare drum and the snare drum's picking that up or the snare bottom's picking it up and it sounds like this. So I'm working that out of the drum sound. So mm -hmm. the vocal, I always start with the vocal. So if the vocal's there, I start to bring up stuff around it and I hear things change. It gets nasally or muddy or boomy. I'm going to that instrument that I brought up and saying, well, let me solo that now. And, oh sure. yeah, there's yeah. this going on. Let me see if I can address that. And at the same time, not ruin the instrument or really the part, you yeah. know, it's really hard with the dynamics to keep, the intent of the artist, you know, the intent of the performance is what I'm yeah. always trying to preserve if I can as much as possible. But you have different styles and different artists every day. So yeah. do you have people tipping you off a couple of days before to say, hey, this is coming, make sure you're hip to this sound? Or is there a person in the band that works with you that says, looking over I, your I do prep from the beginning as far as when the band is booked, like I'm in touch with managers and tour managers okay, and, and front of house guys and monitor guys. And I'm the one that's ordering all the equipment too. Oh. So I'm putting in the orders for all the gear because, you know, they might be anywhere from three weeks to a day. It just oh, depends. Wow. You know, I mean, we could have something where we've had a band booked on our inside studio and say they've been booked for a month. And I think I know everything. And then let's say the week before their song blows up on the radio, right? <laughs> then the day before that, a producer might say, let's move this outside because this artist is so big, they're going to draw a big crowd if we say they're out there. So then I have to go from our inside oh. package to the outside package and 
that changes a lot of things with monitors and, you know, from our built-in console to renting consoles and, wow, and that could happen at four in the afternoon for a performance that's going to happen at 7 a.m., 8 a.m., you know? Uh, So how much help do you have to like set up all these new consoles and everything else? Well, all those guys do it. My job's easy. I set up, I set up my stuff and I mix, you know, I have a big template that my console, uh, my, I have, a setup where I have um, three Pro Tools rigs and a console. Wow. One Pro Tools rig. Look at it this way. Uh, the one Pro Tools rig is a Studer tape machine. That's all it is. It's a multi-track. So okay. all I do with that is just record the rehearsal and the performances. The console is an SSL, right? Let's, it's not. It's a comp- company called Lavo. But let's say that's my SSL. And <laughs> then the other Pro Tools rig is my upward gear i use that as a plug-in server basically it's an insert send and return group in and yeah aug sends to effects from the console i have a third play a third pro tools rig that's my playback machine so if i have to play the tracks for the artist that's on another machine i load the wave files into that so i'll wait for the director to cue me you know three two one i hit playback then the band starts going and then i'm my hands are on the console and i'm doing the mix Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's pretty like, once you do it enough, it, it's pretty straightforward. I built a system that really, I can be up and running pretty quickly. Um, I don't have to, everything is sort of pre-built in a way, because like you said, it's different music every day. Mm-hmm. So my template has like 130 channels of instruments. <laughs> of everything you can imagine from drums to percussion to violin strings horns it's all there vocals so i just kind of import in what i need for the day along with all my effects and buses and everything and they pop up and i just patch from the stage boxes you know digitally into my inputs on my mic freeze and i'm yeah. good to go wow wow so it's it's not that complicated. I my signal flow is probably more complicated than like the actual setup, mm. just because I work in a particular way. Well, um, they love what you're doing. All these Emmys later. <laughs> uh, that's just right time, right place, you know. Um, that's, that's so awesome. That's good artists, you know. I get lucky. <laughs> I was checking out your bio too. I mean, you got to study with so many fantastic people. I mean, you just being a runner over at Avatar for it's just amazing. All yeah, were around. it was crazy. Yeah, I got there when I was 19 and uh, I was there for four years. Uh, I went from like runner to general assistant. I, I never became an assistant. Uh, I went freelance actually before that happened. At the time in the early 2000s, I literally started at, at Avatar right before 9-11, like oh. months before. And after 9-11, like New York City kind of just shut down there and you know, record, no one was flying anymore from Europe or Japan or oh. LA to come to New York at that point. Everyone was freaked out about even getting in a plane. So studios started closing around that time. And then Napster happened like a year later. So it went from this like hotbed of like 150 recording studios to like 20 or 30. And no assistants were moving up. So there wasn't like that spot for me to take because this guy was going to go be an engineer people were just like hanging on at that point it was sort of a tough time in the industry 
And was that your original plan? You thought you were going to move up and stay working there? I thought I was going to be an assistant and then, you know, I would catch on with someone and become an engineer. It didn't quite go that way. Um, I had been in like this general assistant role where you cover all the studios. You know, you could be in Studio A for an hour and then Studio B needs you and, you know, you're helping out the assistants. And I wanted to be an assistant. I was getting bored, kind of waiting. And I just saw the writing on the wall. And at the same time, I was talking to like a lot of smaller bands and sort of building up this smaller client list. And then the NBC thing happened and I was just there in the beginning, a day or two here and there, maybe three days, one week, one day, another week. And it at the time, you know, coming from being a general assistant in the early 2000s, I think I was making five sixty five an hour. So I could make what I'd make in, in, you know, a 40 hour week in less than a day. So I was like, well, I don't have any bills. So I would do NBC two or three days a week and then go do records. Wow. And, and that sort of got me going in the beginning where I didn't need to make every dollar from albums. And it afforded me to get to do some really cool projects that went on for long periods of time. And, you know, stuff that I was able to produce and do all on my own, even at a young age, because I could do it for a little bit less because I was paying my bills, you know, with the NBC uh, money I was making. So it, it sort of worked out. I kind of, you know, I'll always wonder if I went the other direction, but, you know, that, that time is long gone. Well, what would that, that have been? Top engineer at a big studio? No, I mean, I was ended up being chief engineer at a couple of studios along the way. So I don't know if I'd want to be a staff engineer, but I, yeah. you know, for I, I didn't do records for like a 10 year period at all where I just did TV and I was sort of focused on some other things in my life. And, you know, I thought the TV was enough to satisfy me and it just wasn't, you know, I was trying to, I guess it sort of became a job for a while. And, and, um, it was fine. I, I tried to do other things as like hobbies to not be doing this all the time. And it was tough at that time, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, you know, nine, those were like, you know, the recession kind of was kicking in and hmm. no one was making any money. So at the time it was, well, I could, NBC's offering me a full-time gig I could buy a house and, and, you know, live a normal life or I can keep searching for work <laughs> that no labels want to pay for right now. Right. And so I took the staff job and that just sort of the responsibilities got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and when you're doing 225 bands a year, you just don't really have the time as much or I didn't use my free time for it as much. Mm. Um, and then around a little before the pandemic, I started getting back into things and then I had seven months to kind of really do it. And here I am. <laughs> it's great. Still, still doing it. Yeah. What, what is, uh, giving you the magic and the goosebumps and the, or, or versus, you know, what, what gear are, is exciting you these days? Like what, what is the thing that is, is most, uh, propelling you right now you know first i'll say yes i love gear 
and I've got a lot of it. And um, what excites me more is knowing that I can use the gear and not think about it now and think about the music. And now I spent a lot of years where I would focus on one thing. Like I do like a year in review to myself. And I'd go back and listen to stuff I did over the course of the year and go, you know, my low end sucked this year. So next year I'm focused on low end. Or, <laughs> and then I would go, well, you know, low end is good now, but my width and depth are not there. And then it would huh. be, well, I want my vocals to be bigger than mono, but not stereo and not sound like they've got effects on them. Um, I focus yeah. on that. And I did like all of these technical things. Wow. And like almost like you were saying with the mid range. I spent a lot of time being clinic clinical and analytical about like carving all these frequencies out and multi-banding stuff out and making stuff pristine. And I sort of learned how to do all of that stuff. And now I don't do as much of it, but I also don't really think anymore about any of it. Um, I think I've gotten to the point where I just know how, when I hear a sound, I kind of know how to get it. And I know what tool is going to give it to me. Mm -hmm. So now I'm finally like more focused on the music and the parts and the arrangement. Mm. And it's not this, like, I got to get this compressor and do this thing with it. It's more like I'm thinking to myself, you know, the lyrics and the bridge really change the tone of the song. So when that first chord of the bridge comes, how can I change the mood? of the song and the yeah. way that I've sort of built my technical stuff, everything is there for me all the time. So I never have to think of it. And that's something really that came from the live situations where I realized if I had everything available to me and the artist comes in and says, Hey, can you do this thing? I don't mm. have to be like, yeah, hold on. Let me load this plug in and make an AUX input and do this. I go, sure. And I pull up the fader and it's there. And they're like, oh, my God, you understand me. You know what? And it's just being prepared. So I sort of have, even in the studio making records, my mixing template has like everything in the kitchen sink. And it doesn't mean I'm going to use it. It mm. just means all I have to do with like vocals, for instance, I've got faders with all different types of tones and compressors ready to go. And I've got one AUG send feeding like 24 different effects that are all just set, it's set at zero, feeding them all the time and the faders downs. I quickly will just blend faders up and create a vocal sound without yeah. ever opening a plugin. Yeah, I know like what my stuff is. I've got harmonizers and delays that go from short to long and panty things and lush things and short verbs and long verbs and they're sort of all there and i know where they are but i can quickly just literally push up a fader and with 10 fingers put up 10 different effects and kind of blend them and go all right this is a good starting point let me start to build the song around this now and i might change later and i might have to dive into a plugin at some point to tweak something but i'm thinking more about is this work for the music and not like does this work for the mixer Wow. You know, does this work for my ego? It's like, what, what works for the song? I yeah. know I can accomplish anything I want with analog and digital together. Like I can do it all. But if I'm sitting there looking at it, you know, it's just like to stroke my own ego and not to fulfill the song. Hmm. Hmm. 
And the quicker I can fulfill the song and what the artist needs there, I think the better the mix is and the happier the artist is. So I keep wow. working. Well, but what size console are you using that you have all those able to return for anything? <laughs> uh, well, in Pro Tools, it's just HDX. You know, I have a couple of HDX cards and uh, oh, Mac okay. Studio Ultra. I mean, this worked on my trash can when I had that and even my cheese grater. And then in NBC, I've got a Lavo console. I don't know. It's like 850 inputs or something. It's like crazy. <laughs> so I never run out of, you know, I think I'm running like 64 buses and 60 something aug sends and they're all there. Everything is there and it's patched. I don't ever have to think about anything technical. Yeah. Like I really like I'll change the plugin for a different character or tone. Like I have a starting point. Like, yes, I've got stuff that I know is going to work on the base. But number one, if there's five plugins on there, I might use one or two. I might mm -hmm. use all five. I might wipe out all five and go with something else because the song calls for it. But I just have stuff that I can quickly, without even touching a mouse, just on my controller, on bypass stuff, start to turn knobs and, and not get into the weeds so quickly. Like that to me is more... Mm. Uh, I'm starting with, with with yards and moving to feet and getting to inches and centimeters. So it's sort of broad strokes in the beginning. Mm. It's getting an overall feel. I know when I start with my vocal, it's not going to be the final end all be all vocal sound. Yeah. But I'm also not going to like uh, boost a ton of stuff right away either. Right. I'm going to get the vocal feeling good knowing later on I'm probably going to have to add some more high end but I might not. So instead of me doing that right away and then trying to make the guitars just as bright or the snare brighter, or the cymbals, like I'm starting at a point where everything can sort of, and if they need to get brighter along the way as a mixing, I will do that if that's what it calls for. But I don't want to back myself into a corner already by like just being bright or being bass heavy or, um, it's just as the parts come together, then you're, you know, oh, I added this in and now I feel that, you know, okay, this guitar's got a lot of low mid stuff and, and it's kind of clashing with the keyboard. So hmm. let me see which one works better to maybe trim back some of those low mids or now mm -hmm. that the guitar solo is in, the piano feels dull coming out of it. So maybe I need to, you know, work something after the guitar solo with the piano or whatever you know just how my brain works it's different for every song wow uh, wow and everything is right there ready for you to just rock it it's just fascinating yeah it takes a little longer for the pro tool session to load and you need a little more dsp but um realistically dsp is pretty cheap these days if you think about it and you know compared to what it would cost to have 10 racks of outboard gear of all that stuff behind you, you know, a Mac studio is like four grand. So that's a cool I, idea. You know, I can run anything on that. Um, you know, my session is up right now. This is a tracking session, even a tracking session. I'll have stuff available on there that I can get away with as far as latency goes. But once the session's ready to mix, then I import my mix stuff hmm. and it just sort of has everything. I sort of look at a lot of the stuff I have, a good way to describe it is, you know, like Waves has the artist series of plugins, right? like JJP has one in CLA, and they're just like 
sliders, you know, and it's real. Yeah. You know, it says bite or it says uh, spank or or mm -hmm. whatever. I look at it that way. A lot of these things to me are just tone sliders. Yeah. I want more length. So I'll go with this one. I want more impact. I'll go with this one. And I'm kind of mixing into compression and mixing into, you know, a lot of my compressors are um, just sitting there on AUGS inputs right. and all my channels have AUG sends on those channels like a reverb, but I'll just send to a compressor. So depending on what I'm looking for, you know, I have... I don't do it in instrument like food groups. I do it more in arrangement food groups. Oh, cool. So, um, you know, like drums and bass are kind of together in a thing and rhythm stuff, like maybe rhythm guitar or a keyboard or piano that goes with the rhythm will go together to where they're headed. But then maybe the top line or the solo or the stuff that I might want to be on top, I'll send to different compressors so this way as i'm pushing them up my rhythm is not disappearing yeah 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 because since i'm everything is getting mixed through compression there's never i never do not hear a compressor from oh. the second i start my mix bus is on my instrument bus is yeah i have it set up where it's like rhythm melody vocals um chords and all those buses as i push those faders up it's going into that stuff it doesn't go to like the master ever until those subgroups get to the master. Right. So, so, so like those are on subgroups. Yeah, those those arrangement food groups, if you will, go down to the mix bus, which then goes to the master. So as soon as I put a fader up, it's being affected by my stuff. And I know how it's calibrated. And you know, I can hear just from using it so long, you know, if I'm pushing into it too hard or not hard enough or right. something, you know, all the instrument groups feel good, but they're hitting the mix bus too hard. So I can just pull the groups down and then the mix bus starts to breathe better. Um, so it's that set up, right? Uh, you, yeah, you, made, I, you made all those connections and auxes and you did the yeah, hard wiring I, I, everything because I, I basically, you know, I've been fortunate enough to watch a lot of really good guys work. So, you know, I stole lots of concepts from different guys and sort of built it into my own thing, I guess, through the years. Um, and that's what you've just described or you have other things you can tell me? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's always something in there. But yeah, a lot of stuff, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to spend some time with Michael Brower and he showed me a lot of cool stuff. And, you know, when I was at Avatar, I got to watch so many people yeah. work. Um, you know, JJP and, and I've had, you know, at NBC, I've had different guys in CLA. And um, so I've got to watch like just tons of different great engineers work. And through the years, I would say, oh, that sounds really cool. And just kind of throw that into my arsenal. Or if I see something on a video or read about it, you know, I had like all the years that I from high school through, uh, you know, and probably up until like 10 years ago, I'd get like every magazine would come in the mail to me. So when I was taking the bus oh, yeah. into the city, I would read mix and EQ and all the stuff. And Definitely. so every, I read every one of those things back 
back to front, front to back, like five times every month. So if I get, I'd see something, I get an idea, try it out. If it worked, it worked. A lot of times stuff I have is just stuff that I've made up by Mm -hmm. chance, by mistake. If I really like something I did, I'll go, all right, let me pop that into the template and it's there. And then I can go like, Hey, that thing I did on that reggae thing, I want that delay again, that dub delay that I created with the this and that and the other thing. And it's there. So I just bring the return up or send to it. And then I have it. It's still there from three years ago. (laughs) Some of these, this template started in 2004. Wow. And it's been going ever since. This, some of the stuff's the, yeah. 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 Super cool. What would you say is the thing that makes, a bunch of regular tracks sound like a record the most without sounding overhyped with today's overproduction and supersonic killing you with bass and killing you with high end. Like sometimes good people performances. say to me, yeah, it's, it's, it's not good necessarily parts and good. No, I mean, but there's, there's something, there's something almost, it must be the sound of compression that I'm hearing when, Something is really soft and wonderful, but it sounds like it could almost burst. It's got so much pressure in it, and yet it's perfect and clear and powerful without being loud. And yet uh, it just sounds fantastic. What are you talking about? Uh, like, uh, that's, I like, mean, like, like David Donald will do a James Taylor album, and it doesn't sound like a hip hop record, you know. But it doesn't sound like his early records from 1976 either. Stuff is just louder now. You know, I, I keep hearing this thing that the loudness wars are over. But if you see the level of rough mixes coming to me, I, it's not. And you have to figure out how to get there. Because if the artist has been listening to a minus six mix mm. for three months while they're making their record and you deliver on minus 12, like you're going to get fired. They're just not <laughs> going to like it. And mastering is not going to be able to make up that much level without destroying your mix yeah so i just mix loud i just accepted the fact that this is what's going to have to be and if i can deliver a mix at whatever level or a little bit louder than what they've been listening to i'll keep my gig um do i love that all the time no is it appropriate for everything all the time absolutely not but (laughs) that's sort of the name of the game you know i need to work and Hmm. if the art you know that's just what people are accustomed to listening to and hmm. you have to be you know i've gotten pretty good i think at, at making the volume with keeping the dynamics um that's something i spent a lot of time on like i get offended with myself if the limiter is actually working you know like i want i've got a limiter on all the time but my goal is to finesse that thing so much that it's working like a half a db mm-hmm you know, even all my mix bus compressors, I think that's a lot of it. A lot of guys just lean into the bus and the mixes are like there. Like a lot of times I'll have to tell the client like, okay, the first couple of notes are not going to be as loud as the <laughs> rough mix or the verse is not going to be as loud as the rough mix. But when it gets to the chorus, A, B, mine versus your chorus, on the yeah, rough yeah. it's going to be louder than your rough but i'm creating a dynamics in there a yeah. lot of times with roughs or or if i'm remixing something that the artist did somewhere else and didn't like it's like the mix feels like this in your face the whole time yeah and then um, there's a breathe. 
there's a way to make it loud and make it breathe. But if you're just going to live inside a compressor and a limiter, there's nowhere for it to go. It's like a, you yeah. know, a caged animal. Like it wants to get out, but it, it's, 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 it's an animal that's too big for its cage. Yes. You know, yeah. and it's like the hairs bursting out of the cage, but they can't break free. Right. And so I work with a lot of little stages of things to let it, everything moves. That's why I do it as an arrangement thing with my groups. Yeah. Because nothing before it gets to the mix bus, even they're all sort of working with each other. Nice. So if the drums are doing its thing and it's like in and out, in and out, and you feel that groove. And then I go to bring up the guitar solo, which needs to be just as loud as the vocal was. The drum thing is never going away because it's already being contained on its own, you know, with the bass and they're moving. But then I, you know, if you just have, you know, a 33609 or an SSL bus compressor on and you're not doing anything prior, you got to push that stuff up. Your drum is going to start to disappear or that groove is going to start to go away um so i look at it as like i've yeah i've done it a million times you know you get it that's why i start (laughs) with the vocal first and i kind of try to feel like all right is this vocal hot in a sense like is this vocal not clipping and is going to be on top and it's sitting there and it feels good okay now i know where i can go and then i build the loudest part of the song first so i usually go to the end I'll go to like the last double chorus or the bridge, whatever the loudest thing is and build the mix and then pull back mm-hmm. because then it's, then I know this is it. I'm here. I've hit the limit on this last course. So now I can go back and, you know, maybe automate the EQ on the bass down a couple of DB in the beginning and let it come back in or pull the guitars in a little in the verse and mm-hmm. pan them out in the chorus and pull the master down. You know, I might start with the, uh, yeah, at zero for my, um, the outro piece, but the master might be down two dB at the beginning of the song. Mm-hmm. And I'm building it up. You'll see my master and it's like a set of stairs going up almost or up and down. And uh, so all those things, and that's living within my world of compression, I guess. And they're moving off each other. So it'll feel like it's constantly getting bigger. Wow constantly growing instead of just like here's the song here you go and by the first chorus you're like well nothing's happened (laughs) you know like okay the intro guitar on its own was just as loud as when the drum fill came in and then the chorus is the same level as the intro guitar Mm. and now it hurts and i'm turning it down and all of a sudden i'm not paying attention to lyrics anymore yeah yeah and and i just that's common i think there's just a lot of there's a lot of misinformation out there, I think. And what, what it's are good. Getting, what are people getting wrong and, and what would you correct? I don't think anyone's getting anything wrong per se. There's just easy ways to do things. Yeah. If you're going to put an L2 or something pro L on your mix and put the gain up 60 B. Yeah. It's going to be loud and that's <laughs> an easy way to do it, but it might not sound as good as other ways. If you take your time, Mm-hmm. And that's just unfortunately something that just takes a lot of time. Like I'm still trying to figure it out. And I'm, mm-hmm. um, you know, next year will be year 30 since I got my first four track and started recording. Wow. And 
I've been fortunate enough to mix like almost every day of my life since then. Wow. So I've just got a lot of mixes under my belt and I'm still figuring out. So I can only imagine what it's like for the guy who never got to watch these guys and never was in a big studio. And all they do is see these tutorials and these things on YouTube. And that's great because that didn't exist. Like we had mix magazine and EQ magazine and audio media. And that was like it. And so I would have killed for that stuff back then. The problem mm -hmm. is anyone can do it. You know, anyone can post a video. And I think a lot of people that are posting videos are still on the learning journey themselves. Yeah. So maybe they're, and I don't think it's bad intent. I don't think anyone's trying to put people down the wrong path, but if you've never been right. in the situations to learn and just had the chair time to figure it out on your own, like how yeah. many people have the luxury of me to say, well, next year I'm going to spend the year working on low end. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're only going to work on one project all year and mix six songs, and I'm going to do that the first week of the year, I'm just going to have more time in the chair to learn these things. So by the end of the year, I've mixed 300 songs and you mix 10. I'm going to pick up more that year. I'm going to mm -hmm. just from trial and error. It's just at this point, like I know now from hearing a million broken things, when something's <laughs> broken, what that noise is. Mm -hmm. And like today, we had an issue where there was the level mismatch on something and I could hear it just from the hiss right away. And the artist team was going, no, you're wrong. It's this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, please trust me. I know it's, and of course it was right. And I'm not trying to be like a know-it-all. Just when you've heard a gazillion noises over 30 years, you pick oh, that single ended, that 60 cycle hum. That's the quarter inch not being plugged in all the way. That's your converters, you know, set to, to, to plus four instead of, you know, whatever. It, it, any one of these things. And you just, it's like the same thing when you hear... <laughs> I get a lot of messages on Instagram, you know, what plugin should I use for this? If I could buy one compressor, what should it be? You know, what would you use on this instrument? And it's just <laughs> so hard to give like one answer because it depends on the source. Yeah. And the best thing you can do is try everything early on and learn I know all the sounds of these things just because I've used them so much. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, if I hear something that needs a DBX 160, that type of sound, like I know exactly what that thing does. And in my mind, I'm not thinking technical. I'm like 160. Okay, I want it to do pet, 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 and, and I'll do it or whatever it is. I need something with some color, right? It just, you've done it. I can tell, pick up the top of my head, what plus six at AK is on an SSL strip versus... <laughs> you know, and Neve, it's just the years of wow. doing it. And then you sort of have in your mind like this index card system of like, okay, I need this. Mm. Go to there and, and do it. And that's just gained with time doing it. There's no, I, you, I learned really early on. I went and sat with Michael Brower a bunch of times and I had this book of notes and I wrote all this stuff down. And this is when I worked at Avatar and I went from, he was at quad at the time and I watched him and I wrote all these notes down and I went back to Avatar that night and they had studio, whatever was open with the SSL. And I go to the outboard closet and I'm rolling up a hundred pieces of outboard gear and all the techs are looking at me like I'm an asshole. And 
I plug in all this gear and I write the, I got the settings and I'm like writing it down, thinking like, I've got the answer here. This is it. I'm on my way. And it sounded, it was the worst thing I ever did. It sounded so bad. It was just pitiful. And I took it all off and went back to the way that I knew. And it sounded way better. You can't, you can't take my settings. You can't take my settings and make it work for you. I can give you some ideas. Some guy on YouTube can give you some ideas and say, well, 1176 works out well for vocal on me. And you can try that and experiment on your own. Maybe it doesn't work for you. Maybe the way you EQ or the way you record 1176 sucks for vocal for you and you need something else. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of for your ears to figure out. You can be given the guidance, but then you got to run with it on your own and just sit in the yeah. chair and do it a lot. That's, there's no, there's no fast way around it. If there no. was, we'd, we'd all be Bob Clearmountain. Yep. <laughs> and there's only one, you know, and no one else is going to be him and no one else is going to be Tom Lord Algae. And, you know, that doesn't mean there's other people that don't have mixes that are just as good as those guys. They just do it differently. And isn't it interesting how Bob Clearmountain took the Bruce Horn, uh, Bruce Springsteen song, Born in the USA, and turned that snare into like a gunshot and made that song happen. Like he made those tracks support the lead vocal. I heard those tracks dry and it was so uninteresting. And Bruce was just singing the way he sang and he was trying so hard, but he had like no support from the band, it seemed like. But as soon as Bob got to it and turned it into this, it was like he became part of the band. And there were producers in the old days that I loved that were just capturing things and they weren't influencing the production much. And that worked too. So like you're saying, it depends on the song. Dry tracks to instant karma are like, mm, you know, it's a band playing in a room. But as soon as Phil Spector added that, it was it was a hit, you know. And I don't always like what Phil Spector has done to things, but that particular song, yeah, off the I, house. He has some of his arrangements blow my mind. It's funny, I actually have a book about him in my lounge sitting there, and I keep reading, meaning to read it again, just because. While he was a wild man, he had some great ideas, and the sound of some of those records to me is still like can't be beat. Just the way that. Yeah, it's not even the sound; it's the feel. Those mm. records just feel really good, and they're hyped, but in like a realistic sort of way, I guess. He found a spot that was magic for a lot of people, not just him. Yeah, I mean, come on, he probably made the greatest Christmas record of all time. I'm, right. I mean, you know, that's like, <laughs> what's that Christmas really about? That, it feels great. I mean, it's it's yeah, incredible. Yeah. I, I like a lot of those older records. I mean, I'm always trying to do, uh, uh, you know, whatever the song calls for, but I listen to a lot of, you know, a lot of Wilson Pickett and that sort of stuff. I think the drums mm -hmm. and stuff on that are just incredible. The low end on that is incredible. Is it as big as you know, some 808 hip hop thing today. No, but it just, <laughs> just, it moves the speakers in a different way. Like, you know, disco yeah. records, the low end, just, you know, chic records move the low end and yeah. a different way than today's records do. It's like, they're bigger. 
Yeah. You know, there's, well, I guess there's more space maybe in the arrangement and whatever was done back then. I, you know, I, I don't know, but it just, maybe it's the arrangement. It just, you, the base is so, and it's not as subby and it's not, Right, you know, probably lives higher up. It's probably like 150, 200 hertz or something. It's rounder and warmer and more melody, and, more notes. Yeah, <laughs> and even like the 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 bass locked with it. It's not this big thunderous bass, but it's warm. It's got yeah, uh, like a feel to it that just it the groove is right. And yeah. I think a lot of that just had to do with the players too. I think back then you had better performers unfortunately it's i think so too i think true. you had more musicians more players and a lot more personality and 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 magic in the parts and in the performance like you're saying i think it's technology i i think you know I, i'm a firm believer that somewhere in the late 80s early 90s technology and talent like met in a really <laughs> amazing place strangled each other <laughs> yeah and it was awesome and there was so much going on but now i feel like technology might have taken over talent you know it's like there's more technology than there is the talent now and it's easy for us to use the technology to fake the talent and yeah. i you know like i look at my kids how old are at, they now uh 15 and 13 oh wow and and you know they are of the iPad generation. It's a different thing. They don't wait uh, for Thursday night at nine o'clock to watch Seinfeld. They no. wanted to watch Seinfeld, not that they even know what that is, but if they wanted to watch that, they would hit play in a little box. So <laughs> how many kids are going to have the wherewithal to be Eddie Van Halen and sit in their bedroom and practice an instrument for six hours every day after school and not leave the room when you can go take your iPad out or NPC and go boop, boop, bop and drag a thing in that's a pre-corded MIDI pack and you've got a song and you look like your superstar beat maker. Like it's human nature. You're going to take most, most people will take the easy way out. So I wonder like, where is the music going? And, you know, you got to wonder like how many how, how many Abletons or, or, or <laughs> beat maker keyboards does Guitar Center sell over what they used to sell guitars or violins for students or drum kits? It's an interesting question. I'm it's sure it's got to be totally skewed from, you know, let's say the early 90s um, or the mid 90s when more music was made analog. And by that, I mean like real instruments and real people. Uh, and real people, yeah, not soft synths and, and MIDI. I know as a musician, it's been really difficult for me to stay listening to lots of stuff like I used to. And um, thankfully, with teaching, I'm still current. You know, my students will always tell me what's going on, or you can tell from what they're writing what's going on. And I'll say, what influenced you? And they'll play me the original things. But I haven't been listening to a lot of things in the last batches of years. And then recently I hooked up some extra studio monitors I had in another room and put on some songs that I used to love. And I was nearly in tears. I was just so happy to hear real instruments and real people playing and real people playing brilliantly and real mixes that didn't sound hyped and didn't sound overcooked or just blown up for the sake of blowing it up. And I was like, 
this is what I've been after. And it's like, oh, no wonder I haven't been listening to a ton of stuff because people haven't been doing this in decades. I you think know, there's stuff out been. there. It's just so hard to find. And, yeah. you well, know, it's all, I, it's all indie. It's all what we're doing. It's all these unknown people. And, the, you know, I, I as great as streaming is that, you know, yes, you've got any song you want in your pocket. Hmm. It's harder for me to find new music because I still, and I know this sounds so out of touch and out of date, I just miss the community of a record store. That was a big part of my youth was like, we had these great local indie record stores here in New Jersey. And I knew the owners of, of a few of them. And we would go like, you know, you could, when I was in bands, you'd put your band's cassettes there for sale or your seven inches and, you know, your flyers mm-hmm. for your shows. And you'd hang out in the record store all day and they'd have like their record picks and you would walk in and someone pick up something and it's like what what's that they'd be like oh this is this new band you know you should check this out just yeah. from someone that you bumped into in a record store that you'll never meet again just because you saw a cover wow. and i know that's probably a you know it's an outdated more expensive model at 10 or 12 bucks a cd but i felt like i found more stuff then that stayed with me for my life than well it actually fed you it actually fed you. I mean, that's what I've been trying to explain to some of my friends. It's like, it's not that I dislike this or that. It's just that it doesn't feed me. And I need more as a professional musician. You know, I need something that that is deep or is saying something or has some decent playing. If I just hear bad guitar playing, I might as well just be working, you know, like teaching. Because it's like, I hear enough of that. I want to hear something really good, you know, and it doesn't matter what the style is. But you can tell in an instant for me, you know, it's like you can tell a, a good mix or what's the problem with the mix or what the noise is buzzing over there. I can tell what's wrong with that guitar player. And it's like, I can't fix everybody. You know, I can't give them all the best tips and they won't take them anyway. Cause like you say, they're not practicing. And, um, as much as I want to stay current and listen to something new, uh, if it's, if it's not up to a specific level of communication, and it's not giving me goosebumps. I can't help that. It's just not part of it. I feel like I find a couple of good records um, every year, but yeah, I feel like I used to find like 10 good records every year. Yeah. And now maybe it's one or two. And I listen to a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really do go out and if I see a band on Instagram that looks like they might be kind of cool, I'll pull it up on Spotify and, and give it a good, good listen. And if I like it, you know, reach out to them. Um, and you've been hearing everybody that's out there current because they're they're live every day. Yeah, and honestly, I mean that's part. Honestly, without sounding terrible, that's sort of the tough part for me about that gig is I don't get to really work on what I like to work on. You know, just the fact of the matter is the demographic of that show Hmm. doesn't really fit in the wheelhouse of what I listen to personally. What what so, is your favorite stuff to listen to or what that you'd love to work on? There's so many that and it's not that <laughs> I, I've worked with a lot of amazing people. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's been some amazing, amazing things that I've got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, you know, we do a lot of country and we do a lot of pop and those are just not really in my wheelhouse. I'm more of like you. I, I want to hear real musicians and real instruments. And it's not one style. It just is the song compelling to me. And I know in some of this pop stuff I do, there's compelling work in there. It's just covered up with 808s and hi-hats and, 
too much auto tune. You know, I, I do a lot of times when I'm mixing, I'd be like, you know, when I strip everything away, when I get rid of all the schmutz, there's a great, yeah, there's like a great song in here, but with some of those production choices, it gets a little watered down. You know, country is very, you know, it's a formula. And I, yeah. it's almost, you know, lyrically, it's it's really the same. And that's sort of, <laughs> I'm a lyric person. Like, I'm really into, you know, on top of music. Like, I like a good story. I oh, like well. a great story in music that, you know, you can relate to. Those type of stories that it doesn't matter your situation or my situation. When you're in that moment and you hear that song, you relate to that situation. Mm. You feel like it's part of your situation, you know, and. I don't he hear that when every song is about pretty little thing and sweet tea and drinking on the back of a pickup. <laughs> it's just like, it's almost like there's a, a lot of times I feel like they just have like a, uh, you know, it's just a slot machine wheel and they pull it and it's like, okay, it's going to be mama summertime <laughs> four wheeler, you know, or beer, uh, tears and what and it's just like the same i feel like i've mixed that same song like five thousand times yeah and it's not a knock on the players or the artists they're from nashville they're all great players and and you know all that sort of stuff right. um, the singers are usually really great too it's just not my cup of tea but i always try to whether it's a pop thing or a boy band or you know i try to find whatever thing in there i enjoy and work with that to get myself in the zone yeah. but some days it's a job <laughs> well yeah i think they say that about any job <laughs> uh, yeah you know it doesn't matter what you're doing you're going to find something in there go uh, why is this part of it <laughs> yeah yeah but that's you know i think we all have to do a lot of that especially coming up you yeah. know i took anything i'd say yes to everything just so i could get some work and you would always learn. Mm. Uh, I wish, you know, one thing I always tell like the guys that work with me, the younger guys that help out, you know, if you're going to get a mediocre band or a mediocre song or a mediocre arrangement, you mm. can EQ the hell out of it. You can compress it. You can edit it. You can sample it. You can do everything. It's still going to be kind of mediocre. So mm -hmm. don't kill yourself if it sounds mediocre. You're probably taking something that's really bad and making it mediocre. So you've won, but you also mm -hmm. need to know, like, <laughs> there's no way I'm making this drummer any better. So it's just time to walk away. You know, he's inconsistent. <laughs> and no matter what we do, it's going to sound like that. <laughs> and I couldn't do that for a long time, you know, and yeah, it would like, it was like <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was me. But looking back, it's like, oh, well. You know, the guy couldn't play drums. He didn't know how to tune his drums. It was recorded <laughs> in a in a basement with seven foot ceilings. It's not going to sound like the power station. I know I have basic tracks to Al Green's um, "Let's Stay Together." You know, just the multi track, just eight tracks, and you just put up any of those faders, and it's like amazing. And the song's right there, like the whole arrangement, and but the voices are closer. And it just sounds like people standing there singing. You go, oh, that's what my background vocals sound like. Just people standing there. And, and I remember even hearing, um, 
living in the alternate world, listening to uh, George Harrison's living yeah. in the world alternate tracks. And sometimes there was a drummer or two. And it was like, wow, my drums sound like that when I record them. So there's hope. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, there's something to be said for what it's supposed to sound like when you're tracking. And, and you know, by the time it, you're, it's not yeah. going to sound like a mixed thing when you're tracking. So, right. Unless it's you doing it live. <laughs> well, I'm doing it because I'm, I'm, mix, I'm mixing it. So, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. but you can't yeah. with headphones, you couldn't get away with the latency and everything else with the what I'm doing to make it work that way. You know, like I just track something and it's not it doesn't sound like one of my mixes yet. It takes, you know, mm-hmm. I can't do that when the artist is listening through headphones through Pro Tools because it'll just push it too far back in time for them oh. for me to do all my routing and all, all the stuff I do. So I get oh. it as close as I can on the way in. And then, and then you know, once I get my template in, all the routing starts happening, everything will come to life a little more. But in a situation like you said, where you put those multi-tracks up and the faders are there and it feels really good, the groove any, any time that i get a song to come in and, I, and like that and i go to mix and i just my template starts with all the faders up sort of at a good starting point and hmm. if i do that and i hit play and i make a couple of tweaks and i'm like wow this feels like really good before i start doing anything i'll print that and i'll this way, if I am overcooking it or if I did take a wrong direction, I know my first impression was this feels really good mm-hmm. as it is. So I can just I have that on a button, external button on my console. You can get I back can A, B. Yeah, I could just hit a button and I hear that. You know, I have um, the way I set up my desk. I have one, two, three, four additional stereo mixes. So I'm going to have four mixes lined up in time with what I'm working on and just a B with buttons. So let's say I have the live mix is number one, what I'm working on, you know, whatever I'm, you know, I don't mean live, like it's a live record, but just the mix I'm working on two will be their rough mix. So I can just hit a button and that's lined up in time. Right. Three might be my initial impression that I printed. And then four will be whatever if they said, hey, we like this song and this song and this song. I'll get those from Spotify and put them on a track so I can just go. Oh, okay, sure. They wanted that snare. Is it in the ballpark to, you know, I'm not trying to copy it, but at least I have like an idea or, you know, we really like the way the low end is on this record. I can instantly level match a B and go, I don't have enough low end yet, or I'm overdoing this, let me back it off. Yeah. I like that plug-in reference by mastering the mix. I put all my reference things right in there. Yeah, that's sort of similar. Um, I have reference, I use that with, I have that plug-in on one of those channels. Mm-hmm. So I, I can take anything from my library nice. and j- just put it, you know, when I hit play, it goes and I just hit a button on my desk and nice. it pops up. Did you learn anything so, from Dave O'Donnell when you were over at Avatar? You know, he's pretty, he, uh, pretty he quiet. Wasn't there a, he wasn't there a ton when I was there. I think oh. he did a lot of his work there before me. 
he was there a few times, but I never worked with him. Okay. Um, I definitely remember him being there for stuff, but I don't remember really being on any of those sessions. I don't even remember what it was for. That place was crazy every day. You know, when, when it was busy, four or five rooms cooking, you know, you could have so much stuff happening at once. <laughs> uh, that's sort of why I like being back in the studio again and not in my house. Cause oh, I nice. walk, I walk in, you know, there's a studio on the first floor, a studio on the second floor. I'm on the third floor. That's so exciting. you take a break, you go out to the lounge, you run into another engineer. Hey, what are you working on? You know, what's going on? Oh, did you try this new thing? Check this thing out. You know, and it's like being back in a, <laughs> in a creative community. It's sort of worth the price of admission to sort of just be, yeah. you know, especially after the whole lockdown situation to be out and about every day and have a staff and, you know, That's... hey, can you guys run out and grab this? It's nice. It's nice to, to, to be back in, in a, just a creative place. It sounds like studios are going to start making a comeback for a lot of good reasons. Yeah. Um, I don't know like what the business model is to make them profitable. Cause I don't know if they ever really were. I mean, I'll probably be here for a few years, but I'm sure at some point I'll end up just building my own place. It's just probably going to happen. I thought that's what you had at your house. I thought that's what I that did, was but it took over my house and <laughs> I needed the basement for my kids so they could kind of do okay. their stuff. And I, I, I just wanted to, after the lockdown, I really felt like I wanted to get out of the house just for a creative thing, just to be able to like make work work. I go there, I do it, I leave. It just gets me in a different headspace. Even just like with the uh, like little interruptions or stopping or, you know, someone rings That's the doorbell. True. Like when I'm in a zone, I'm in a zone. And I would rather have four hours of being in a zone than eight hours of like come and go. Okay. Sure. Because uh, my, my attention span is only so long anyway. And I, I find that like, I'm only good to mix for like six hours, eight hours tops. When you get a good momentum going, you don't want to get pulled out of it. Yeah. And I just like to walk away. You know, I'm the type of yeah. person like I always have a TV on in the background or other music going in the background. I like I like to hear a talking head or something just as a yeah. reference. You know, if I'm mixing and mixing and mixing, and you never hear anything else. Like what if your vocal's super bright? But you have no other you have no other reference, right? If I've got the news or something stupid on in the background and I go to the, walk out to the lounge to go to the bathroom and I hear something that's not hyped up talking and then I come back in and the vocals like taking your head off. I'm like, all right, I probably overdid it a little bit. So, so back it off. So I like having little cues like that, little distractions. But I also wow. want to do my four or five hours while I'm in the zone, print it and then listen to it on the way back to the studio the next day in the car or something and go, all right, you know, you got to fix the low end a little bit or, hmm. uh, you know, it's too dark or it's too bright. And then I can just come in and do that and be done with it versus spending an or another four hours, like tweaking a whole bunch of stuff that probably doesn't need to be tweaked just because hmm. my brain's heard the thing too many times. And now yeah. you're nitpicking stuff that no one's ever going to hear, <laughs> you know? You have everything returning to the console all the time, right? Yeah. Because my my setup is still split here. 
I can be completely in the box on that side of the room. I could be hybrid. Or if I wanted to use the tape machine or Logic and the mixer, I could be totally on the console. But every song then has to be parsed out to the console. And I hate that part. You know, it's like that's if why I, I, I don't do analog anywhere for that. I don't have an analog console. If I had a oh. tracking room, I would. There's no yeah. way. Like I hate, I work at a studio sometimes that doesn't have a console in their tracking room. And I'm just so used to having a large format board to grab stuff and tracking that if I had a tracking facility, I would probably get something like you have, but the bigger one. Yep. Now the 24 or whatever, or 36. Yep. Um, But the way that my setup is, is I have, I cut it back. I was up to 96 channels of IO and and the converters were starting to get a little crazy with the latency it was things were starting to sound weird so i knocked it back down to two converters so i've got 64 channels and all my gear behind me it's through a patch bay but it goes on the top row of the patch bay is the output of the converters so i've got what 40 channels of inserts so the top is the output of the converter (laughs) that that goes into the next row of the patch bay which is the input of the outboard gear then the next row is the output of the outboard gear and then the next row is the input of the converter and in pro tools everything is labeled what every insert is so they're there like a plugin for me if i want uh 1176 number four i have that out of insert but what i do uh for recall purposes is i have like this massive uh calibration template so every piece every channel of io is on a 64 fader template that has a signal generator as the first (laughs) plugin and the analog insert as the second plugin and the comments section i have what the gain reduction is and the level that it should be returning to in Pro Tools. I put Pro Tools in a calibration mode and I can see down to a tenth of a dB what it should be. So if I look in on my uh, Manly, it's a uh, one dB. So like minus 18 Pro Tools should have the compressor doing one dB of gain reduction and returning back to Pro Tools at minus 18. If the left is a little out from the right, I'll tweak it or whatever. But this is like I was talking about with the center imaging. Like yeah. I get that all matched up and then I don't touch the outboard gear. Yeah. Those are my settings. So then I can open or close any mix I want and the recall comes up. Oh, cool. And yeah. I'll print like my effects and stuff now. And I've been printing more actually since yeah. I changed my setup back in January. I picked up uh, that little SSL mixer. And and I built some malts into my patch base. So a lot Mm -hmm. of times before I start a mix, I'll patch up one output to the malt. And then I'll malt that to like six different compressors, return those to the SSL. And then the left channel output of the SSL, I'll patch back in a Pro Tools. I can send any source out to it, pick a compressor or a blend of compressors record it back into Pro Tools and use that as my starting point for whatever plugins or ever, anything that goes oh, cool. on it after. And so, What converters are you using? 
Uh, Antelope Orion 32s, the HD, the Pro Tools, HDX models or whatever. Okay. Um, I have three of them, but only really two of them are set up right now. Um, it'd probably be better if I had like an Avid brand converter, like a Matrix or something for the delay compensation. It's just the Orion for the money is a really great converter for 32 channels. And yeah. anything else would be like double the price. Well, we have to get Avid to give it to you. That's all. I was actually with those guys the other day. They're, they're, Avid has some good people. I know they, they can catch some flack sometimes with things, but I've always had a great relationship with them. They've been helping oh. me out for years and years and years. I've been a Pro Tools user since like the late 90s. And, wow. And I, I pretty much don't use any other DAW at all. Have you been back to Power Station now that it's part of Berkeley? And do you know No, I did a session there last probably 2017 or 18 was the last time I was there. I don't really know anyone that's part of the whole Berkeley thing at all over there. So actually one of my interns here now, he's a Berkeley online student, but he's hasn't had like an invite or anything to go there yet. Um, I can put you in touch with Steven Weber. He's the head of it all, and he's a good friend. Yeah, I'd love to go check it out someday. It's been Me years too. since I've been there, and it's like every time I went back there, it felt like I was going home. You know, I spent so you know every yeah. week I'd spend eighty hours in that place for four plus years. Did you know Susie Hollander? No, that must have been after me. Yeah, I think she was around when Dave O'Donnell was there more. But you I know, I was there like two thousand. And one to 2005. I think it was just after her, yeah. And right after I had visited. But I can remember listening to three albums that were out at the same time. Uh, Eric Clapton, Pat Metheny, and a uh, Gary Burton album. And I'm in my living room at this little apartment I was living in, listening on a dinky stereo system. And I thought, there's something about all these albums that has a quality that sounds the same. That sounds amazing. What is going on? And they were all engineered by Rob Eaton at the power station. Oh, so you're I, talking about are you talking about the 24 nights, Eric Clapton? I'm like, no, I think it was Journeyman. And and I was like, oh, oh my he God. did that too. Yeah, Rob Eaton's. I, I can hear the room. I'm hearing the room. <laughs> you know, like, he plays was, in a Dork Dark Store Orchestra now. Yeah, yeah. He's great. Yeah, he's awesome. He's a great player. He's a great guitar player. Oh, I know. But yeah. all his, uh, yeah, all his stuff was great. All those guys. I mean, it was like watching, you know, getting to see some of those guys come back. Larry Alexander, who did like the Huey Lewis stuff, and wow. Jason Kersaro, who did, you know, Power Station. And, and that's what uh, I miss about uh, all the digital stuff is is all the credits. You know, I used to know everybody's name and and follow their work, and now you have to do, do a lot of research. You know. Yeah, that's a big problem for the industry in general. Uh, you know, I always feel bad because it's like if I'm working with the band, I'm like, you mind if I post something? Because now when you put this record out, you know, my Nobody name's not going to be on it anywhere unless it's on vinyl and everyone does those as like limited releases. So, you know, if you're only printing out a couple thousand, you know, no one's ever going to know. Yeah. that I work with you guys. And a lot of times I'm like, man, this record sounds great. Who did this? And I can't find out. And it's you. <laughs> no, I wish. <laughs> but, you know, that's it's frustrating, you know, because mm -hmm. I feel everyone's working their butts off. Yeah. And there's I, that's how I found a lot of the studios and real. Even when I was playing in local punk bands, 
you know, every cassette, every seven inch, every CD had the studios in there. So you knew what were the good studios in town. And, you know, right. back in the back in the early 90s, especially, there was a big divide from like pro studio and what, you know, the local scene was because local was, you know, if it was good, you had a one inch 16 track. That's what I have. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people had half inch 16 tracks. That Tascam and those Fostex machines were everywhere. I had the had, 38. I had a yeah, half inch 38 yeah. that I made my first album on. Yeah. Yeah, you know, but that was the that was sort of the level, you know. Maybe you'd have a Soundcraft console if you were lucky. And were, most a lot of times to. it was like, yeah, a lot of times it was a Tascam console, or mm -hmm. and that was and those were the 35 to 50 dollar an hour studios. There was no Neve Mike Prees or LA yeah. 2A clones. It was like you're lucky if there was a DBX 160 and an Alesis Reverb. And so you had to find the guys that did your type of music that were good at your music. So if you listen to a lot of local music, you would look through, oh, this one was done at this studio. These guys are only 35 minutes away from us. You know, maybe we should go here, listen to this thing they did. And mm -hmm. now how does anyone, you know, even if you are the guy who's really good and a local guy, maybe you don't have, you haven't had the opportunity to have big artists in your studio or go to a studio to work on a big artist. How does anyone know you're making these cool records? <laughs> How does anyone know, you yeah. know, if no one's listening to him because 6,000 million songs are getting released every day. And even <laughs> though you, you got lucky and worked with some really great artists who wrote really great music and it sounds really great. <laughs> like if a thousand people hear it and none of them are musicians yeah, and none of them know the artist to ask, Hey, who did your record? It sounds really great. I'd like to go there. <laughs> How do they know? <laughs> it's too many. They don't, people you know. know. They don't know. Yeah. And I don't know really because I'm too old, but I don't know if the local music scenes with younger kids, you know, how much interaction there is. I mean, I was really fortunate. The scene that I was in mm. at the time in the mid 90s, early 90s was like huge. You know, a local show would have a thousand kids or 500 kids wow. at it. And, you know, there'd be five or six bands playing, but you all talked. Mm -hmm. so, oh, who, who pressed your records? They sound really good. Or who did your merch? Those T-shirts look great, you know, and there was like, right. it's funny. I was, I was listening to a podcast about that, you know, because there's a podcast about everything. And, <laughs> and, and so I was listening to a podcast about my local scene that a couple of guys did. And the one guy who used to throw shows, used to throw a lot of shows. And back then we would rent out like Knights of Columbus and American Legion halls and <laughs> Those were our, a lot of our venue, you know, the cafeteria at the community college. Like, that's the sort of stuff our scene was in. And this guy said, yeah, you know, when I used to throw these shows, I was 16 years old, living at my parents' house. And back <laughs> then there was no map quest. So you'd write on the flyer, call for directions. So on show day, my mom would be answering the phone all day saying, you know, you got to make a left at the quick check and turn right, you know, and, and, and <laughs> So analog you know there's none of this stuff but it was everyone talked you could you know talk to all of these different people and and learn something figure out who the best engineer was figure out who the good live sound guy was to hire mm -hmm. i don't know how much that exists or doesn't exist anymore with social media it's not as personable probably 
thankfully there's still word of mouth, I guess, and people are still people. But yeah, there's there's so many technologies and things that are helpful and so many things that are getting in the way. And we just use our creative best to uh, to navigate what works for us, I guess, like everything else. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love technology. I don't want to make a record on tape. I don't want, I'm, <laughs> I have, I have no interest in any of that. I'm, I'm fine. You know, I, I wish I could do bounce to disc. That's sort of, I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm, I'm pretty digital on everything else. You mean disc like CD disc? No, like just not having to print my mixes in real time because I'm using analog. Oh, 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 oh. You know, I would love to be able to like do that whole Andrew Shep's oh. bounce butler thing and like print all my mixes overnight while I'm not here and not have to do them in real time, especially because I work with a lot of jam bands. So, yeah. you know, we've got a lot of, I do a lot of 30 minute songs and 20 minute <laughs> songs and you got to sit through the whole print. And then my problem with that is I'm listening to QC it. But then mm. I'm always hearing something I want to change. So it's it. like I've got to keep my hand off the the button to stop. You know, if it's like 15 <laughs> minutes in, like, don't touch it. Just leave it alone. <laughs> it's fine. They're going to be happy. And <laughs> next, you know, I forget I, you even wanted to make that change. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, I was, you know, I, I think a lot of us do the same thing where we worry about something that bugs us about the mix. Like yeah. something was bugging me about the mix today and the artist came in, didn't mention it, you know, didn't mention a thing about it. So it's yeah. like, I might hear it, but they don't. But the thing they hear might be more important that I missed. So mm -hmm. I'm looking for their input. Um, the artist is usually right. So I usually, <laughs> if I'm off, they usually, whatever they, I had to find if they like, pull this up, bring this down it usually locks it into place Sticks and it could be like yeah. one or two little things. Like you've got everything cooking really good. Mm -hmm. And then they come in and it's like, Hey, can I just, it's finished. You know, it's cause they know the arrangement. They know what their intention was. They've been playing it or practicing it together and something's still a little masked or whatever. And that little and bit. I'm fortunate, I guess, where, you know, so many of us, don't really do attended mixing anymore. Oh, right. I, I mean, <laughs> I would definitely attend if someone else was mixing. <laughs> well, most of the time, you know, most of us just get an email with files in a link and we download mm -hmm. it, we mix and we send it out. We wait for notes. Well, yeah, I guess if you have a rough yeah. mix, you're good. Yeah. If you get, or you talk, I talk to the, I always talk to artists ahead, but what I, what I guess I, I was getting at is with NBC, the artist is still coming through. So a lot of times I have them in the room with me actually listening, going over the mix. And, you know, if there's a piece of advice I could give to anyone, especially people who haven't had a lot of experience in this modern age of attended mixes, mm. you don't need to tell the artist everything you did. Don't, you definitely don't. <laughs> don't try to impress them with, I put this compressor on the snare and then I, you know, cause they're going to be thinking about the stupid snare drum and not the song. Yeah. And then you're going to end up having to do all these recalls. I come in, yep. introduce myself, say, hello, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. And I hit play. <laughs> and if they got something to say, they're going to say it. 
But if I tell them, well, I put this cool delay on your guitar, so you know your guitar's like, pan here, but there's a delay over here. Now they're not listening off, to the song. Off. They're well, it's not even that. They're just they're listening for that thing, and they're not even listening to the important part anymore. That stuff is all just like crap we do to make it better. And yes, mm-hmm. it can make it better and bigger or more whatever emotional or whatever you're looking for. But they should be looking back with the widest landscape and seeing the big picture and yeah not being you shouldn't put them in the technical weeds because you're just going to bury yourself <laughs> the technical weeds you know oh, i was in such technical weeds finishing up my last cd snow cake i was like chasing my tail and going around in circles with second guessing a million things it was almost a bad experience at the end because I was getting to teach uh, music production and engineering classes at Berkeley, and I thought, wow, now I'm in this mastering suite, and now I'm in this studio, and now I'm in that. Let me take my mixes in here and check it out. And I was trying to make changes based on what I thought those speakers were telling me because I thought I was in professional facilities (laughs) rather than just being at home. And I was going insane. And when I mentioned this to one of my classes, a couple of my students went, oh, God, no, don't trust any of these studios because they've been having trouble recently. And this thing happened and they changed this. uh, uh, Oh, no. And they didn't change the other driver. And now they're not in sync. And I was like, oh, my God, no wonder. (laughs) I was like, I'm always trying to trust my ears. But I thought for a second, okay, well, this is real. This is real information. And it wasn't. I the first record that. I produced on my own went on for like way too long, like eight or nine months. And (laughs) it was going and going and going. It was great. We had a great time doing it. It wasn't like it was a bad thing. It's just, it took a long time. And I remember I finished the mixing and we went to Sterling to have it mastered when they were still downtown in Chelsea. And it's like, you know, the best mastering room in town and, we got done with the master and went to the car and I hated it. I I thought I hated it and it just didn't sound right to me. And I was just too deep in it. And I was just, just too deep in it from eight months of like, you know, hearing it here and hearing it there and doing a million overdubs. And it was too, I was too close to it. And it was like, now I hear it and I'm like, it sounds fine. You know I mean? Yeah. Could it be better? Yeah, if I did it today, it'd be a lot better. But for what it is at the time, it sounds fine. And whatever I was pissed off about or really upset about, I mean, I remember being like really mortified. Like, oh, man, like I fucked this up. They spent all this time, eight months. It just doesn't wow. sound. And the band was like, this sounds great. And I'm like, no, it's not right. You know, and it's just sometimes makes you, you crazy. You just got to. That's why I like to do shorter spans of time. I don't get bogged down. I got rid of all the extra speakers in my room. Really? You're just using one set of... I got one set of monitors. If if I get fatigued on these, I've got the Aura Tones that'll pop up for a little while. But I've kind of switched off where I'm a firm believer in just getting to know one set of speakers and not confusing yourself. What are you using? uh, Focals. Oh, sweet. Uh, Yeah, the three ways, the trios. Nice. And I got that and a uh, Trinov. And my room was designed by Francis Manzella, who was a great mm-hmm. studio designer. So the, the room was pretty good to begin with. And then I spent quite a bit of time tuning it, um, 
with speaker nice. placement and sub and crossover and all that. And mm-hmm. then once I got it really close, then I did the trend off and then tweaked from there. Uh, see, I'd see like what the trend off needed to do. And then I adjust the sub level and the crossover level until I made the trend off do the least amount of stuff it had to do. Mm. And I just basically listen as one set and that's awesome. I mean, like my recalls have gone down to almost none. Like it's really been the last since the beginning of this year, when I got the trend off or the end of last year, I did the trend off and then I got the focals. And since then it's so I, I haven't had, I don't think I've had a comment on low end. Oh, that's amazing. Like not one, which was always like, always an issue (laughs) i mean it's like been tiny little things can you bring this up a little yeah like Like, more arrangement stuff rather than correction yeah i've yet to get you know it's too bright or it's too dark or the vocal's too loud i've been really fortunate since i got the monitor monitoring correct and that's like the biggest challenge i wish more people had an interest in that than the plugins because it's like you can ask me about any plugin, I'll tell you go put this plugin on. But if you know what you're listening to, yep, you know you should instead of spending the time watching plugin reviews, you should be watching Carl Tatt's videos on acoustics and and, <laughs> and studio design and just yeah. basic things like where to place your speakers. Because- Which comes back to real recording techniques to begin with, because it's not about just dropping and and adding little files that someone else recorded if you're making real music you're recording the instruments yourself and you've got to figure out what sounds good and yeah that you know i'm always mortified when i see these people that like take couch cushions and things and make these like vocal (laughs) box and if you've ever seen these things there are people build these like vocal booths and (laughs) i've gotten so many vocals like that and it's just like you've got all sorts of stuff yeah. You know, that you have to filter out and notch yeah. out because of all these short reflections. I would rather have it breathe and have a little echo in there than, than okay. have that thing where it's just the feel. <laughs> you know, like when you go into a studio that's really dead and you walk in the room, it just feels like the air sucked out of the room. Yeah. Like during the pandemic, I was getting stuff that people were recording in closets. And, you know, one time I was struggling with this vocal. I was struggling with this vocal for like an hour. And I'm like, man, like the resonance and all this stuff. And I'm trying everything soothe and all these other plugins. Finally, I'm like, is this guy wearing a mask? Oh, my God. I called the band up. I go, did you guys record vocal through a mask? <laughs> oh, yeah. He forgot to take his mask off in the second chorus or whatever it was. Oh. It's like, well, that's what I'm here because I can't pay, you know, and it was. <laughs> so, yeah, acoustics so to fun. me are that, that and room setup and speaker placement and getting, you know, if you've got like one crappy set of speakers and a focus right interface and a 57 and an overly hyped cheap <laughs> Chinese condenser mic, like your room placement and the sound of your source is what matters the most Mm -hmm. the intonation of your guitar have you changed the tubes in your amp 
Did you mm. tune the drums first? Did you like listen to the drum? I know, yes, you recorded in a garage, but did you walk? Did you just put the drums where there was a clear space or did you walk around and like try to, you know, sure. maybe the spot that you didn't think the drums would sound best in sounds best in. So put them there because you are got a disadvantage because you got a, a cheap focus right interface and a cheap mic. Yep. So if you get all those other things in play, you can make drums sound good with one or two mics, but, and that was done a million times, but we all know like Ringo knew how to play into those mics, you know? Yeah, exactly. He, they knew how to where what spot in the studio to put him in that he was going to sound the best. It's not like they had all these doodads and plugins and phase alignment and, you know, tape emulation. And, you know, they had their two mics and a Fairchild and they plugged it through that. And Ringo knew how to play to that. The parts were written great around the songs. Mm -hmm. And that's all you needed. Yeah. You know, now if you start at the arrangement, get the arrangement right, then figure out where you are in the room or whatever you got to deal with. And your monitoring is right. You can actually hear that. You're taking your $200 worth of equipment and making it sound like 10. Yeah. Just versus the other guy who didn't do his homework. Right. That's and always the case. A better engineer can take any gear and make it sound better than most of us with tons of gear. A lot of times it's really, is it a better musician? Because if it's a better musician, then, you know, I remember I got to record a band. I probably was maybe just turned 20 and I got a night at, at power station where the room was empty and the manager said I could bring a band in. And I brought a friend's band in who was like really good. And, you know, I copied what I saw all these great engineers do and I use the same gear and everything. And first of all, it's power station. And, you know, second of all, it's the Neve. And third of all, it was a good band. Like that combination of all those things. I thought I was a great engineer. Like, this is easy. Yeah. Put the faders. Up. <laughs> yeah. I'm the next Al Schmidt. Here we go. Um, and then, <laughs> and then whatever it was a couple of months later, another friend's band was going to come in and they were terrible. And I, did the same setup and I thought this is going to be easy. Let me put my feet up and show these guys how good I am. And it sounded like terrible, it sounded horrible. The drummer was horrible. He didn't know how to tune his drums. He couldn't play to the room. The arrangements weren't good and it sounded bad. You were capturing exactly what was there. <laughs> it wasn't you. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just a firm believer in like, we can always make things in incrementally bigger and better but it's got to start with a good source and a great drummer can make any drum kit sound good. Yeah. You know, a bad drummer can't make a great drum kit sound good. No. Same, Same with, thing with a guitar player. or strings or vocals or anything else. Yes. And auto tune can put a singer in tune. Does that make it a good vocal? It won't give you goosebumps necessarily <laughs> if they're not connected to what but, they're doing. But a great singer who sings a little out of tune with the emotion there, you don't even want to touch it. It's great. Or yeah. maybe they do want a little tuning, but it's just a little bit to fix this note and it's not lined up to create and cut up. And it's like, okay, the artist feels more comfortable because that little bit of pitch is fixed and they feel more confident in their performance. And you can't even tell there's auto tune in there because it was, or melodyne because it was a slight little. Mm -hmm. 
little thing, but it's their performance and it's them and it feels good. Awesome. (laughs) Feel, groove, real people, real music, real instruments. (laughs) Yeah. Pocket, pocket and groove. That's so important. And that's something that the other thing that I really focus on is intent. As As a musician, you know, specifically with drums, but with really any instrument. Drums, especially because it's multi-miked most of the time. You're, as soon as we start putting moving faders and turning pan knobs, hmm. we're altering the drummer's intent. That's right? true. Yeah. Unless you're going to place perfectly one mic in the room that's in the perfect spot and they're playing to it, hmm. we are altering their dynamics no matter what. Just by putting a blending microphones. Because we're creating a fake image that wasn't there. So then you get into, well, I want my snare to be brighter. So I got to turn the brightness up. Oh, now the symbol's washy. So I got to gate it. And now (laughs) all of a sudden the ghost strokes are gone and it's stiffer. And you're just getting, instead of, you know, so then, you know, so we're altering by everything we do with all the compression and all the gating and all of the samples, all the stuff we do. So I'm always trying to go back like I do with printing a mix to like the one mono mic and trying to, in my brain, like, okay, I know we need more low end because this is a rock thing or a pop thing. And he doesn't hit the kick that hard, but I'm gating that. But now I'm losing the feel on the bounce off the snare. So how can I gain that back? (laughs) How can I what can I do to bring that groove back into it while keeping the impact mm. in the punch and, and make it feel consistent, but not make it not feel like the drummer. He's a personality. His playing is his personality. Mm. And you start compressing something or getting something you're changing and altering his personality, how he leans into the one on the turnaround. You know, if you're mm. compressing it, it's not leaning as hard, right? you know, Maybe he's playing a little behind the beat, but what you're doing with the compressor is making it groove a little faster. So it feels like he's rushing now. Mm. And that wasn't his intent. He was playing, leaning back for a reason. So you have to think about all of everything you do, the intent. And, you know, okay, yes, we have to alter the drummer because that's what the song calls for. That's mm-hmm. what the sonic calls for. That's what the genre calls for. But you know, try to keep in mind where he's at because mm. he's got to listen to it and it's his performance and he's got to live with it forever. I'm going to go on to my next album and <laughs> he's going to live with this forever. And this might be his only album he ever makes. Wow. So I want it to feel like he feels like what I did is there or what I did, but even better. Right. Is, is there. I don't want him to feel like, man, I don't know. The drums don't sound like they did in the room. Or I don't hear the ghost strokes on the snare on this part or the articulation of the way I'm opening the hi-hat on the third India. But, you know, like whatever Mm. it is that we start to do these things and it starts to alter all of that. Oh, I know. I have wrecked a lot of my grooves. <laughs> and I was playing the drums. <laughs> it was like, uh, that's why I don't play the drums because it's not much of a groove. 
and then I put the compressor on in the wrong place, and it's like, <laughs> what <Yeah>. happened? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's same thing. The relationship with any instrument, you know, if it might be the acoustic guitar is part of the strumming is part of the rhythm, right? Mm. And that's working with the snare. But yeah. then you notice they're clashing. So then maybe you were looking into, well, I want the acoustic to feel like it's leading. So mm. maybe I'll back off the attack on the acoustic guitar and mm. let the compressor grab after the initial peak. And then I'll go to the snare drum and maybe I'll pull down the initial peak and let the ring happen. And then okay. they don't stop, they stop masking each other and they start working together. Mm. Or, you know, the bass needs to feel like it's a little more on top of the beat so let me lower let me bring the release of the attack back on that so that first note jumps out and it feels like he's ahead of the the kick drum a little bit or vice versa i want it to feel like he's behind so let me take some of that attack out and now when he hits that first note it's going to compress and then the sustain is going to come up at the same time when the kick's hitting, if I do that attack later, that's going to feel like it's ahead of the bass now a little bit. I mean, not much. We're talking like microseconds or milliseconds, but... Enough to make it feel like the intention was right and it's in a pocket. Yeah. You know, a lot of times mm -hmm. if a song yeah. feels like it's dragging, I'll try to do something to make it feel like it's moving a little faster mm. without without you know, tempo changing things or pitch altering or, you know, just or with, setting everything to the grid and doing a time alignment. I'm talking just with compression and limiting and just. That's what I'm complimenting. Yes. <laughs> trying to make everything groove in that way where everything maybe the, the drums are releasing a little faster. So it feels like he's moving a little more or you want it to sound sluggish. So they're not releasing faster. And it's taking time for the compressor to get back on that groove hmm. on the next attack. So it almost feels like the drummer's behind a little. Hmm. And then if you're doing the opposite with the acoustic guitar, now it feels like the acoustic's leading and the drums are laying back, if that's what you want. Right. You know, it's all off a of feel and, again, what the artist is looking for. So cool. I love what we do. It's just so crazy cool. But you, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm still trying to figure this stuff out. It's it's a mystery. It's so great. And gosh, I, you know, it's so cool to meet you, Matteo, and, and to, you know, give me some time like this and to chat to everybody and tell us some of the things that you really feel is, is a really cool opportunity. Uh, well, thanks for asking me to do it. I mean, it's been Thank a lot of fun you. talking and. Uh, no one should take anything I say too seriously because I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing. I just make it up every day. And yeah, if you get any cool ideas from it, awesome. I'm glad I can help. But I'm sure there's other people that do it a completely different way too. And their version might be cooler or it might not be, but you should try to pick up all of them. Yeah, it's got to see what fits all of us, fits any of us. Yeah. I can remember being very young and listening to different people tell me this is how you do this or that. And it wasn't even about recording, just life or, you know, how to walk. <laughs> I'm making stuff up now, but it's like I can remember in my head going, that works for you, but that's not going to work for me. You know, like I can remember being like seven, eight years old going, I have my own ideas and I, I have my own 
I'll take a little of this, but I want a lot of that. And I want this over here instead. And uh, it, it always surprised me in my head because I'd be giving them the yes. <laughs> well, but I know I'd be doing something else, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's the dangerous part about the internet. Some people really believe what they do is the only way. Mm. And it's just not, or it's the right way. And I, I'm a firm believer that there is no real right or wrong way. If mm. putting everything, putting all the faders all the way up to like plus 10 sounds good, then that's what you do. Having them all down at minus 20 is good. That's what you do. There's no, you know, if you put distortion on everything and it sounds great, do it. If you want it super <laughs> clean and it sounds great, do it. There's no, you know, I love just as much to hear like the Joe Cocker Bad Dogs and Englishman record, which to me sounds like the tape machine's about to catch on fire. It's so <laughs> hot and explosive. It's just like everything is, and like it sounds amazing, but at the same time, like, you know, I love hearing those early 90s Joe Jackson records that have that kind of bright, pristine tone that's a different energy. Mm but just as good in a different way. So there's so many different takes on it. You know, so many, every day I want to do something different. Well, I think that's a, a really great point because I've always thought it's a gigantic playing field and anything goes. So even when I would say to someone, I'm just really trying to get good at this. I really want to make it sound better. And they go, what's good, what's better. And, and it's like, okay, well, here are my reference mixes. This is what I'm after. And then some people say, that's never going to happen because you don't have $50,000 microphones and preamps and pieces of gear and but that's years experience. And, and, you know, you're not this one or that one. And it's like, but there's a lot closer. Yeah. There's a lot of places where there's a yeah. lot of information missing between what uh, I'm doing versus what someone else is doing. And, and a good teacher, I think could be able to tell you what that is. Cause I can tell people what that is with guitar and it's in a heartbeat. Uh, somewhat, I think, but then I think sometimes we'll like, you know, back in the seventies, U 47s weren't $50,000 microphones. Right. Right. And like Jimmy Iovine was like 22 or something when he was producing Tom Patty. So yeah. maybe, maybe you don't need 30 years of experience and $50,000 microphones to make it happen. Good point. You know, those were only like $2,000 microphones back then. And he was two years out of school. So, or whatever it was, it was a young guy. And there's <laughs> lots of examples like that. Yeah. So while, sure. yes, I, I'm glad I have the experience now and I definitely know more. I don't think that should scare anyone away because they don't or that their product would be mm. any less for it. Right. You know, if the pursuit's the pursuit, and if you find it, yeah, it doesn't matter if you've got 50 years experience or five weeks. If it's got it, it's got it. If the music's good, <laughs> you'll figure out a way to make it translate. I was bouncing back and forth from cassette deck to cassette deck. I was like, you know, 16 going, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, my first setup was we had this, the boom box with the microphone in it. So I would record guitar into the microphone and then i put that tape in another boom box and play that while i put another tape in the first boom box and recorded that while playing along to the other one so it was like cassette tape on cassette tape 
Exactly. Through, <laughs> through, through the boombox limited mic that's like, you know, it's got that <laughs> sort of crazy. You hit the first note, and you just hear the kind of kick in. Boombox noise. <laughs> yeah. Tons of tape hiss. Back and forth. Back and forth. Yeah. I still yeah. have that tape. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> I still have all my four tracks um, from the '90s, and I about 10 years ago bought a four track on ebay for like 50 bucks it's crazy now they're like 300 bucks again but but in like 2005 or 10 or something i bought the same four track that i had a fostex and that one happened to have direct outs on it nice so i transferred all my tapes to like pro tools 15 years ago or 10 years yeah. ago whatever it was and i haven't ever listened to, to them again but at least i know they're there hopefully the hard drive they're on still spins i know i made that first album among the ruins with my band too true on a half inch Tascam 38 and we brought it to toby mountain's place to get mastered and jonathan weiner was just learning then and uh, he mastered it. And we thought for sure they were just going to send us home, like, go home, kids, because this was done on toys. <laughs> and Toby said, it's amazing what people are doing in their rooms these days or in their in their houses. And that was 1989, you know. Yeah. Everybody's recording at home, you know. And there were people recording at home long before I started doing it because there was that book, How to Make and Sell Your Own Record. When I was, uh, you know, just like 10 years old, I had that book, you know, so. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely come a long way. You can do a lot more now, but there's definitely something for the simplicity of what it used to be. And there's I, something about learning that way too. You know, you have to, Yeah. you know, I had four track and then I got a little sub mixer. Yes. And at the time, Sam Ash was like running these deals where like they had all these CAD microphones. They they must have gotten like a million of these things as part of a deal. So it was like buy a set of guitar strings, get a CAD microphone for free. So by like the end of one summer, I had like 12 of these CAD bad 58 knockoff mics. Nice. And so then I got this sub mixer and I'm like, I can mic up all my drums now. So I had all the drums going through the sub mixer and it was stereo out sub mixer. So I just pan everything to the left and take the quarter inch left out and plug it into the four track. So then I'm like, I've got multi-mic drums on my four track. This is great. Wow. And then I got another four track. So I had, I would do the drums in stereo and lay two guitars down, mix that together, bounce that to the other four track, add bass in the guitar solo, mix that, add that back to the other four track. And then I had two left for vocals. Nice. And I would do all my effects with guitar pedals. That's great. You know, that was, yeah. but that's all you had. There was no, and I appreciate that I was able to do that with high and low EQ and no, you know, I, I, I think now when all these guys ask me like, well, what plugin should I use on this? And should I get this dynamic EQ? And I'm like, I had high and low EQ and it <laughs> took me a long time to figure that out. So like, maybe just get a two band EQ and just work with that for a little while. Yeah. And when you get that, then graduate to the next thing. Cause there's so many choices. I think people get like paralyzed. Oh, definitely. Oh, like, definitely. should I use this? Should I use that? I'm like, I never even thought about that. Like yeah. there was either like you turn the reverb pedal on or off. Do you want it on the <laughs> snare drum or not? <laughs> and, and that was it. And you know, I was doing old school, making the toms underneath. And cause I came, the first studio I started at was like, 
a total 70s thick shag carpet everywhere dead <laughs> super dead that, yeah. 16 track studio and and <laughs> it just you know had that that's how they did everything sounded like 70s disco drums super tight they had a had a <laughs> uh cinder block and the kick drum and you know wow. everything had that thud on the snare and that's how i learned how to do everything initially <laughs> So that's even though I was doing punk stuff, it was like I was pulling the bottom heads off the toms. And I didn't realize that that was already, you know, this was the early 90s. So I didn't realize that was already like out of fashion. <laughs> you know, that's just what I did. I always thought it sounded pretty good. But um, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily care what's in fashion. I never did for, you know, clothes, hair, music. It's like it's new to you. You're experimenting with it. You're getting something great out of it. It's a new song. So even if though it's got an old technique, it, you know, it's like when George Harrison said uh, that they wanted to use the six nine chord, the major six nine chord on she loves you. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they're singing all these different notes, making this beautiful chord. And George Martin saying, uh, you know, lads, uh, that's very corny and it's very trite and it's mundane. And we've, you know, that was from the 40s, you know, like it's it's old hat it's a cliche. And George is like, we don't care, we like it, you know. So they brought that thing back, and everybody went crazy over it again. I mean, a good thing is a good thing. So yeah, I was just about to take my bottom heads off recently because I've never done it. I haven't <laughs> and done that. I was going to get some calf skins well, after that. <laughs> there you go. I, I, I mean, back then I didn't know that it was. I, I mean, I knew I know my toms. I well, I knew my toms didn't sound like what the records i was listening to so i thought i was doing something wrong they actually sounded yeah. warmer and fuller and at the time in like the mid 90s everything had a lot of attack on it, especially with heavy music you know it was a lot of like yeah. scooped out low mids and attack and like i had this kind of thuddier sound and you know yeah. kind of wonder now what that would sound like if i went back and listened but that'd be cool and if you've seen any of the pictures you see that the bottom heads are off you go i don't know where they're getting those cracking sounds that's great yeah super yeah. cool so many different things you can do totally did, did we not get to something that you were really wishing you wanted to tell folks or any particular tips or things uh, like something that was earth shattering to you when you finally learned it with compression or eq or oh i'm still learning compression every day so i mean that's something i think that's just a lifelong journey i think Every, way, you yeah. know, I, I think like I've always thought I understood it. I guess it just gets more in depth <laughs> as you get old. I, I would say just if you're trying to learn compression, sit there with one so source. Like I remember even I remember like in the mornings when I would clean up at power station, I would they used to have those old Yuri clicks in the room that that god awful click. And I would just patch that into different compressors. Wow. Like, okay, the 160 does this to the attack, the oh, wow. 1176 does this to the release, and like I would just start. So, you could do that with plugins now, and it's easy, you know. Once you get comfortable, I mean, I would always say start with like the stock stuff and just master it on everything so you know what it sounds like, but yeah. then take the one plugin and try it on every single source. Yeah, you know, learn what a DBX 160 does on every single source, learn what a Fairchild does on every single source. And that's how you sort of build up that index card in your head of 
okay, I need something that pumps in a certain way. Let me go to the compacts because I know mm. I'm just trying it on everything. Or, you know, one time I tried sticking this compressor on a vocal and it sounded like crap, but for this vocal, it could work. If you don't have, you know, and you try it and go, yeah, that's perfect. But if you don't do those experiences of trial and error and not on the artist dime, you know, where you're trying to mix for them, like just on your own, download multi-tracks, yeah. you know, um, uh, I always tell the guys that work with me when they ask me stuff, it's like, you got to mix every day. Mm. Because if you're not, trust me, someone else out there is. <laughs> so if you want to get, I come in on my free time when I'm not getting paid to try stuff. And I've been doing this a long time. So there's mm -hmm. plenty of people just as crazy out there as me. So if you really want to get good and do this, I don't care if you're assisting all day for 10 hours. You better go home and mix on your Pro Tools rig at night. <laughs> I'm getting in a mix today. How are you going to get better than me if you're not getting in a mix today? <laughs> and I'm not saying it's a competition. I'm just saying yeah. if you want to get better. Like when I, when I would assist guys or I would do like the backups. Back then we used to do the data tape backups overnight and all that sort of stuff back in the, sure. what was it, AIT or whatever they call ATI. But I would make, you know, I wasn't supposed to do this. I guess their avatar is out of business now, so I can't get in trouble. But I would make DVD backups of whatever sessions. And I would just take it home in my little Pro Tools rig in my grandparents' basement and try to mix those songs. And I compare it to the guy mixing, wow. mixed on the SSL all day. And that was after being there for 10 hours and taking an hour and a half bus ride home. And I'm not trying to say I, you know, walked barefoot through the snow and all that stuff. I'm just saying if you really... Want to want to do this stuff? You got to want to do it that bad that you're willing to like work on it all day and then go home and try to did what take what you learn and apply it. Hmm. Like, don't wait for someone to hire you to do it because it's not going to be great. Mm -hmm. Do as much on now these days. You can download a million multi tracks for free online, and there's pure mix and produce mm -hmm. like a pro. When I was tuning in my room, I was downloading tracks just to check out. Or if I get an idea for a concept, then I don't have, I don't like to remix stuff. I'm not a mm -hmm. big fan of that. Once I mix it, I've mixed it. I don't want to see it again. So yeah. I'll get, I'll ask another engineer, hey man, can you give me one of your sessions? I got this idea. I want to try something. Because yeah. I love doing it and I love coming up with different concepts. Or, you know, one day you might hit the wrong button or put the wrong plugin on. It, gives you an idea for something. You say, all right, I can't work on that now. I get this mix done, but I'm going to come in next week. I got Tuesday. I don't have anything booked. I'm going to mm -hmm. come in and figure this out, figure out if I can make yeah. something out of this. So if you mm -hmm. have no experience and you're not doing that, yeah. you should be. Because that's what's going to separate, you know, the great guys from the guys that are like hobbyists. Right. And I, I love that advice of seeing what each piece of gear would do on different sources. I, remember getting my first piece of gear, which was like an SPX 90 in the 90s, and setting up a microphone, an acoustic guitar, a bass, and a guitar, and going through all the presets and see what it would do to it. And I made a cassette and talked and played whatever came to mind, and it's hilarious. And it was it was wonderful. And they had like little booklets. And here's all Phil Collins sounds, and here's all, uh, yeah. you know, uh, whatever engineers were doing things in those days, 
playing with these pieces of gear and giving you advice. And it was like, oh, save that as a preset, you know, my own user preset, because that was a good one, you know. I would do that even without source material. Like when I was coming yeah. up, like I said, when I go to clean the rooms, I take the oscillator on the SSL or the click track. And if you turn the oscillator on the SSL from 1K to whatever it is, 100, it makes a little clicking noise when you do that. So that's how I would learn reverbs and delays. Oh, wow. I would, you hear the thing and then you'd figure out by controlling the feedback, you know, you plug it in, you know, you put that oscillator, patch it on a channel or the click track and patch it on a channel and then patch the augs send to whatever reverb you're playing with. Mm -hmm. And this way, because a lot of time back then, but they didn't have pro tools in every room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you didn't really want to mess with the tape machine, especially in the middle of an artist session so but i would plug that in or if there was no sessions going on or no tape in there and just say oh okay this reverb has the this the chamber sounds like this this plate sounds like this oh you know wow. i always hear about this gated reverb thing so let me insert that drummer gate on the <laughs> return of this analog plate nice and then oh okay so you know, they say about the decay of Studio A is like 0.8 milliseconds. Let me get the the gate released to be that. And let me see if I can make it, you know, and do that sort of stuff. And I did that all with all right. click tracks and oscillator tones. And wow. then like learned what it sounded like to do like, you know, a ping pong delay by sending it back to itself and all right. that stuff just by hearing clicks going tick 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 and so I was already out. building that index card system in my head of like, yeah, I know now from hearing the tone generator going through the PCM 42, when you turn the rate down, you, you turn the rate real slow and, and the depth up, you know, and you hear yeah. all these. So I know if I want something to do that, like uh, it's built in from just doing that stuff. So you yeah. can do that in Pro Tools for free. Wow. You know, and it doesn't have to wow. be mixing a track. It can just be learning the stuff before you mix the track or learning what the headroom is. You know, it's like when you used to go into a new room with the console you didn't know, mm -hmm. you'd kind of have to play with the level and learn the sweet spot of that model desk if you hadn't worked on it. You know, like you, know, you could push a 4K more than the 9K or you know, the Neve you could really push and those EQs did something different than the SSLs. And that was like by just doing it and learning it and not doing it on someone else's dime where you're, yeah, I got this. Don't worry about it. <laughs> putting in the time on your own, ser searching it out. And that's the type of thing that you could be an intern running for someone all day and then still go home and do that at night. And I'm just a firm believer and you got to mix every single day. Yeah. It's like playing every day. Just got to, it's just like playing day, play the guitar. Day. Same yeah. thing. If you don't do it every day, someone else is. You feel it slip. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I try, I don't, I don't think a day has gone by in like forever. I mean, just a vacation day here or there, but I'm, behind a console every single day just about wow and it's just reps it's just getting in the reps it's a fine way to live actually <laughs> i like it you know yeah 
I remember going to uh, Wurlitzer's music store in Boston with my keyboard player saying, we want to buy a gate. We needed to buy a gate for the studio. It was when everything was analog. <laughs> and the guy's going, what do you want a gate? <laughs> what are you trying to do? Like, we didn't realize it was gated reverb to get that sound. <laughs> we got to buy a gate. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny because I do all my gated reverb with a gate. I don't use a gated reverb preset. I have a gate after the reverb. Yeah, do your own reverb, yeah. I actually have another one that has the gate before the reverb so I can control what goes into it. Sure. And it kind of dampens down. Nice. That's a bigger reverb that I have with a lot longer pre-delay. You could probably sell your template on your web page and make a fortune. No one would be able to figure out how to use it. It's <laughs> it's it's not even that. It's not complicated. It, <laughs> it it's just like one of those things that you got to make your own. And you know, it's funny. Pure Mix put out Michael Brower's template. I know. And I've and done I, many of them. I, I took a look at it and I was like, this is awesome. This is awesome for Michael. Michael knows how to use this. Exactly. My template is awesome for me. I know how to use it. I know where to push the faders up to make it start to do its thing. He's yeah. intimate with his and he knows his way. His way is his way. You can cop some ideas from that and some concepts. And I sure as hell do. But there's <laughs> no way I could sit down and put wave files into his template and make it sound like anything. And if someone tried to take mine, like it's the same thing. They just, they could figure it out, but it's not going to sound like what I do with it. Not that I'm saying what I do with it is great. I'm just saying I, it's like, that's my tool. That's, right. that's right. how I get around. You should spend the time learning the processes to create your own master tool. That's going to work yeah. for you. I know I've, I've worked with a couple of different templates of my own and keep changing my mind and then keep adding more gear and figuring out there's so many different ways to work. And wow, have I made things really complicated? <laughs> How do I want to work now? Because sometimes it's like, I just want to write a song and record it. What are you doing? Because I hooked up everything myself and it's like, oh my God, I learned a ton. But a lot of it is super unnecessary and incredibly fun and uh <laughs> a really wild batch of years the last five six years <laughs> yeah I, I i trim the fat every once in a while on it if, yeah if there's stuff i'm not using sure eventually it goes or i make it inactive and hide it and yep. yeah there can be overkill i think it i don't think it's so much about overkill with the gear as overkill with your mind Mm. You know, if you know where it's all going and why it's going there and your gain structure is correct, mm -hmm. it should be just more like an instrument you're playing. Just like if you're a really good guitar player, right? you can get around the neck anywhere. And even if you get yourself back in a corner, you can find your way out of it. It's fluid. It's a part of you. You know your instrument. You know the feel. You know how to push it. You know how to pull it back. It's the same thing. This is just my instrument that I've been playing for a really long time. Mm. And that's why this, for me, started, this template started a gazillion years ago. And yeah, it's bigger now, but the core of it's the core of it. And it's sort of been that way a long time. Mm. And I know for me where to put the faders or 
I have it set up so where the faders start when my guys put the wave files in for me and hit play, it'll sound like a song to start. Oh, cool. Like it'll sound, but usually by the time, luckily, you know, these days, usually when it's ready, like I'm first hearing it when I hit play. And it's, yeah. since it's running through all my stuff, I'm already hearing it through my gear and hearing mm. it through my buses. And I know what those are doing to the sound. So if something is detrimental to it, I can take it off really quickly. Yeah. And I just have the gain structure built down to a point where these faders, these buses, these this, these that, it's already hitting correctly. Hmm. You know, all the thresholds for everything are in the ballpark. They need to be. Nothing is going to be like, I'm not going to have, if, if you were to put whatever strings up, a string section up on 12 string tracks in my template and hip play, if they're gain staged correctly on the audio, hmm. it's going to sound like a good string section to start. And then all I have to do is work it a little bit more. Sweet. Um, versus like starting from scratch and putting up faders and and trying to figure out well what is the gain stage and what's going to be the loudest thing and where do I start my mix at? I'm yeah. like hitting play and it's basically like a rough mix already there as well as the client's rough mix. So I can like pop their rough mix on and go. All right, they added a bunch of verb on the drums and this is brighter and <laughs> you know, let me go back. Okay, yeah, they scooped some low mids out. They did this so it's like I can instantly my mix probably sounds like a scaled down version of what they had already. Or sometimes in some cases it already sounds better. better yeah. <laughs> because it's just, you know, they did it at home and they don't have great monitoring and whatever EQ they used on their mix was all wacky because there's all this low end in their room and you know And they're not my... going through all your nice combinations of Yeah, everything here is like hitting stuff when I open it up. So yeah, yeah it's gonna that's yeah, fun. Yeah, you know, when it's running through tube compressors and all sorts of fun gear, it's already gonna have a little more of a thing to it. It's gonna yeah. push and breathe a little bit more right out right off the start. Yeah, that's a blast. Gives me but, lots of ideas. It's exciting. You're a very cool person to talk to though. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been awesome. I need to come visit you, and I would love for you to come visit me. <laughs> yeah, any anytime you're out in New Jersey, New York, let me know. Yeah. I'll have you come tour one of the studios. I can hook you up with Steven over at the power station. Yeah, I'd definitely love to go there and uh, check it out again. I haven't seen it since they've redone the whole play. I know like it's all different now other than the studios. Yeah. So they, they, they took they took away the freight elevator and like all the crazy stuff that used to be there. Oh, really? Yeah. They, from what I understand, I saw a little video on it, but that's all I've seen. And that was like, a. I forgot making... about the freight elevators. <laughs> yeah. They, I'm sure it's all different now than the studios itself. When, you know, the basement's not the basement anymore, I guess. And yeah, that's something else or that's ground. I don't know. I saw a video. It seemed very interesting, but I definitely want to get back there and check it out at some point. Do you know Al Schmidt? I assisted a couple. I assisted the assistant a couple of times for him, and he was like one of the nicest guys. Yeah, you know, awesome. I specifically remember meeting him, and I think I had to go get 
his muffin or his bagel or something. <laughs> he asked me my name. And then the next day he remembered it. And I was like, that's really nice that he, but he, you know, you hear these stories about how he, I specifically remember setting up a, the first time that he came in and, you know, everyone knew who he was and, you know, it was like a big deal. And oh, I remember yeah. doing the setup and at the time, you know, we were doing a lot of like modern rock stuff and everything, lots of gear and, you know, lots of mics. And like, he came in with this super simple setup. And I thought as like a young buck, like, mm -hmm. this guy's not going to do anything. I'm not going to get to learn anything. And it's like, you know, he had like one compressor and, and, you know, these like kind of simpler miking setups. And it's like, he went into the room and I don't, it's like, he just, it's like he made two fader moves and all of a sudden it sounded like an album, you know? And it was just like, yeah. wait a minute. Like there's no EQ. There's like one DB of compression on the bass. Yeah. And like one DB of compression on the vocal. And it already sounds like a finished record. How the hell did he, and I'm looking at the console and there's not one EQ engaged. It, wow. It's just like he had these, I, I don't even know. This was so long. This is like 20 years ago or whatever, but I just remember being, at first thinking like, I'm not going to get to learn much here to thinking what kind of voodoo does this guy do? Or there's a reason he's got 18 million Grammys because he's just so good. And he was so nice and pleasant and watching him interact with the artist. It was like, he just made them all feel so at ease. Yeah. You know, it's just like Al is here. Everything's under control. And he would just talk to them and, you know, like almost like prop them up. He just oh, had nice. a really good way about how we talk to people from what I remember. Oh, wow. And maybe this is all wrong and maybe my memory is not, you know, we tend to remember. I don't think so. That fits one way. I've heard. <laughs> but, but the limited time I had with him, which was, I don't know, maybe he did four or five records over the period that I was there. And, you know, those records that he did weren't three month records. Although I want to say maybe he did a Diana Crawl record that took a while. Maybe it was Diana Crawl. Well, you know, he was taught by Phil Ramone. So <laughs> I, I got to watch Phil work a bunch of times too. That was really cool. That's cool. I yeah. used to dance around with him at graduations. We'd be in our gowns and you know, <laughs> just laughing about things. And I think I gave him a cassette tape once, but um I remember him being yeah. very serious. Oh yeah, no, he was a goofball when I was hanging with him. I just mean with the work, like he was Oh yeah. It, you know, you could tell he thought on another level. He had in his head. He was amazing. The picture, you know, he knew what it was going to be before it was anything. And he was just like his arrangement ability and the way another guy, you know, from what I remember, he could just talk to the client. You know, he could talk to the artist. Yeah. In a way that just made everything seem like he made them feel right. Nice. You know, he made the world, everything feel good. And, I've yeah, been I mean, with, with Al uh, over the years because um, <laughs> a young guy named Matt came in for guitar lessons at my Berkeley schedule once, and he says, "Yeah, my my dad's an engineer." And I I glance over at his last name. I went, "Your dad is Elliot Shiner." <laughs> I absolutely flipped, you know. And then uh, he came to his son's graduation, and then he spoke at graduation, and I was able to say hello uh, to go to his house in Connecticut and. Uh, he's going to come on and do a, a chat with me too here. So oh, awesome. Yeah. I remember getting he's to watch him work a little bit. Sweetheart. Yeah. He was another one of those guys that just like, it sounded good right out of the gate. And yeah. Just, you know, it sounded like a record before like anything happened. Yeah. 
I don't know how, and, and not like with 87 compressors and all. Yeah. It just, you know, and what, what a man, uh, you know, a man of quality, you know, just like yourself. I mean, he was on the phone a couple of times with Japan talking to Panasonic, trying to get the uh, ELS uh, requirements together. And he was like, no, no, my name's not going to go on that. I told you what we need, you know, and he's pacing back and forth, you know, like, this is what has to be. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah when right. you got that kind of resume, they're going to do it your way or not do it at all. Oh, they're not going to use his name otherwise. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, he was so uh, cool. not a legend. Really? Cool. I think he's retired now, right? I don't think he's... I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. Uh, I know Grammy Awards are very heavy. <laughs> when he left me in his surround room... And I saw the Grammys up on the walls. Like I had to go pick up one of the Grammys. It was like five pounds. You know, those things are heavy. How heavy are the Emmys? You have a ton of them. Uh, the, like I four, guess they're eight. about that five. Five. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's just the right place, the right time. I mean, I didn't do anything different than I don't do the other 5,000 times. You know, it's just right, right. a couple but of the artists were good enough where, where it worked. Stars align. Yeah, I, I really don't think it was anything I did at all. I think it's definitely, you know, I mean, some of the artists or some of the shows that I did, they were just good, you know? I mean, <laughs> Lady Gaga is Lady Gaga. She's going to do compelling things that make people like it and win awards. So <laughs> just go along for the ride. Part of a winning team. Yeah, that, that works. Well, you're being very humble. But, of course, if you didn't have any of that stuff together, the show wouldn't have gone off and there wouldn't have been any awards. <laughs> and people wouldn't have think thought that uh, Lady Gaga did a good uh, job that day, you know, and it would have been the sound, you know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if people even notice the sound. It's. I was at the Grammy Awards uh, the year Bob Dylan got a special award and performed. And I think Yoko was on stage that night, too. And Bette Midler was singing and she danced too far away from one of the monitors and all of a sudden went flat and she quickly danced right back in front of that monitor again. I thought, wow, this really is live. You know? <laughs> They're really pulling off the sound live. <laughs> yeah, those shows, um, you know, I don't really do a lot of award shows, but I've done variety things and, and things where, uh, you know, some telethons and, and different stuff like that, where it's like artist after artist after artist. And that's hard. Uh, yeah, it can be. I mean, a lot of times now, back in the day, it'd be full bands. A lot of times it's vocal to track now and a lot of that stuff, like the music's pre-recorded and it's just the vocals that are live. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just a lot of. Um, it's just too much. It's just too much for producers these, these days of these expensive shows to risk you know, getting another 48 input band swapped out for another 50 input band. And then this one's got a string section and a dance routine. And, you know, it, it's so I understand why they do it. Yeah. But it's still, you know, like this year for the um, tree lighting at Rockefeller Plaza, I do those every year. Oh, well. Wow. And what was it we were going to have? Bad, I think it poured the day of the tree lighting. So <laughs> so the day of the we usually do a setup day, a rehearsal day, 
And then show day, we do a dress rehearsal and the show. Oh, my God. And they decided on the rehearsal day that it's going to pour so bad the next day that we're going to tape pretty much all of them today. Wow. So I think I tracked 30 songs and mixed in like 12 hours or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so if it was full bands, I would have been killed. I think one was a full band and everything else was like vocal to track, I think. Or maybe it was all vocal. to track. But I mean, still just going through. Uh, was it three or four songs per artist? And I think. Eight, eight or ten artists. Wow. And it was just like, bring the next one out. Rehearse, record, rehearse, record, rehearse, record. They're done. Next. Wow. You know, and you're just moving your console along to the next one and that's all preparation that whole anything that's why in general i always you you said anything else that i could tell people is preparation mm. preparation preparation you know you got a session coming in mm-hmm. you know you never worked with the guys before mm. You better make sure every mic has been tested. Every headphone is good. Make sure the instrument that you tested, you hear it going through the headphones and it seems mm. like it's in the right place. You want them to walk in and be able to sit down and hear themselves and play. Mm-hmm. The last thing you want is them to be waiting around for stuff. You're going to nosedive the thing right away. So I'd rather spend more. T- I'd rather spend eight hours prepping for a four hour session and have that four hour session go smooth. Right. Then have them waiting around while I'm running around, changing patch cords and figuring out why something's not working because the mm-hmm. that tube mic wasn't working that day or whatever. I'm I'm such a proponent of of being prepared before I mix anything. I've already done a day of prep before yeah. I track anything. I've already figured out the input list. If someone's assisting oh. me, they've got the input list. Mm-hmm. We've you know, like I just did one where we traveled to another studio because I couldn't use the A room here. It was booked and I, ha- I had to bring a ton of gear with me. We pulled the gear out of my racks here, re-racked it, ran it through a different patch bay, did a completely new headphone system we put together, built cool. it. I checked it all in this room before we left to go to that studio. Every line, every single thing. So. We got in there and had a four or five hour window to get ready for the band. And when the band showed up, we were completely ready for them. Wow. Took them an hour to get their their tour bus unloaded and everything and get their gear inside. And, you know, I think they showed up at noon and we had sounds for 50 inputs and had the first song tracked by like 5 p.m. Wow. And there was no, barely any, like, we've got to fix this or we got to do this, or it was all, it was all happening. And, oh, that guy. This is Romeo. Romeo. They're they're getting fidgety. They're like, we need to go outside. All right. Well, we'll let you get going. Then I should get home soon too. I got a new pup. So you do have a new pup. What'd you get? Uh, English bulldog. Bacala. Bacala. Fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a, kind of stout husky little man you know i got a a little girl over there too she's like a long hair he's a smooth 
But one thing what you were just saying uh, could backfire, it has backfired on me, is don't let anybody change a bunch of things once you've checked everything. Oh, no. Don't, I had don't. somebody come in and they're like, we don't need this mic. We don't need this. I'm like, okay, oh, we could put the drums this way and we could do this and we could try that. And they're moving everything on. And all of a sudden, everything was different. And we had all kinds of problems. And I was like, I should never let anybody do that. Yeah, I I go, I take the approach of overkill. Like, yeah. I would rather have five extra mics set up. I did. Ready to go. But then as soon as they start unplugging things and putting them in different places, that's a bad thing. <laughs> no, I stick to my setup. And if it doesn't get used, you know, I ended just up it. just mute with it. like Move six on. extra channels that we didn't need. But yeah. then all of a sudden we need one. For instance, you know, like I was telling my assistant, we were using, they decided to start off with the house B3, which is a great sounding B3, but mm. different than the guy's A100 or whatever he had. And I could tell after we cut the first song that he just wasn't jiving with that instrument. That B3 just didn't play like his does. Didn't sound mm. bad. It just didn't play the way his did. So I was already telling these guys, listen, I know what's coming. Get this other one ready to go. Get the cabling. Get the other Leslie. Have it on standby. Right. We didn't finish that next take where it's like, hey, do you think we can switch out? The organ, of course, no problem. We're all ready to go for that. So um, that's so important is just to be prepared and have everything ready so the artist can change whatever he needs to change, whatever she needs to change. Um, and just if you hear them, if you hear like them talking and they're talking about doing a piano overdub and you're the assistant, you should be wrangling mics together to put on the piano if it's not mic'd up already. You know, even if they don't use it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Looks like one of my little guys. I think I lost your sound. I had there muted so you didn't hear the rumbling around. That's all good. <laughs> I all right, well, actually, I should probably get going too here. I didn't realize it was 5.30 already. Jeez, I still got a set up for this stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't You're realize amazing. it was Hey, well, thank so, you so much for having me. I appreciate it was so cool, it. so cool to meet you, and um, I really look forward to meeting you in person. Absolutely, anytime you're in town, and anytime I'm up your way, I'll definitely reach out. Oh, thank you. I would love that. And then, yeah, let me know when you're going to put this stuff all out, and I'll uh, spread the word. Oh, sweet. Yeah, if you want, I'll send you a copy too for your YouTube channel. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it'd be so cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mateo. All right. Stay in touch. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Matt Ruffino on Creative Conversations with me, Lauren Passarelli. Okay, those were amazing recording tips and studio ideas. And how about that last bit? Stay prepared. Set up that extra B3, man. <laughs> okay, check out Matt Ruffino's webpage. Check out his YouTube. Check out our YouTube, My Creative Conversations on LaurenPassarelli.com, El Pass Guitar on Instagram. Take good care. <laughs>